9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Recorded? Recorded? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall, be fe shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. See, that's describing this time, when this is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, the, the lion didn't lie down with the lamb. That was a man-made concoction. You could read right there who laid down with who. Not that that wouldn't happen. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a lion laying down next to a lamb or laying, back, laying down next to a kid? What's that? You know, today, that's meat, right? That's dinner, right? Not then. An amazing thing. One more. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34. We're talking about the fact that he receives dominion and he's worshipped by all the earth. Now, I realize that within a spiritual kingdom, Jesus Christ has that dominion. He has dominion because he's God. But there's coming a day in the future when all this will be true as well. All right? Ezekiel chapter 34, excuse me, 20, yes, 34, verse 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. One of these days won't be need for a, a bunch of different preachers anymore. Some people say, praise the Lord for that. I do too. Praise the Lord, right? And no matter what our calling may have been in this life, we'll be in the same situation over there, and we're going to love it. 
It's going to be great. Say, what do you think the Lord's going to have us do during the thousand-year reign? Well, the Bible says that we'll rule and reign with Christ. He may give us responsibilities. I don't know. I've got a few in mind that I'd like to have. Right? I like to be able to force the law for the Lord. Right? Do you ever get tired of all the wickedness that goes on around you? You ever just get fed up with it, hearing about it? We're inundated. It's the sodomite thing right now to be something else later on. You know, they're just a minuscule part of our whole nation, and yet they want to be recognized in their wickedness and their abomination, just like a man and wife that have been married. That's wicked before God. Yeah, preacher, you think, you think that, that them being allowed to be married should be put against the law? If this were a theocracy. We don't live in a theocracy today, folks. You see, man's going to go in the direction that he goes in. But one day, when Jesus establishes his kingdom, all the world, everybody, everybody is going to listen to him. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is something that's coming. So we have described for us here in our passage in Daniel chapter 7 the fact that this Son of Man enters into the very throne room of God. Actually, He's there, isn't He? He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. He comes into that presence, and we notice several things about Him. Notice with me thirdly. Christ's kingdom... will never be destroyed. There has been an unrelenting movement against the Lord Jesus Christ and His spiritual kingdom from the Garden of Eden. You ever, you ever stop and think about what it would be like if, if, if Eve hadn't sinned? Eve and Adam both sinned. Adam did it by choice. Uh, you say, well, we ought to blame it all on Eve. You can't do that. Can't do that. She should have been with Adam. Yes, she should have, but Adam should have seen to it that she was. Let me ask you a question. Let's say one day, Jacob, you get married. Your mom's back there shaking her head. Forty years, forty years, right? Let's say one day, Jacob, you get married, and uh, by that time, your dad's a vast property owner. He owns millions of acres. You know, you know this is going to happen, right? He owns all these millions, and, and, and way back in the middle of nowhere, up kind of halfway up in the mountains, surrounded by the mountains, and all the wild animals and everything else way back up in there, there's a, your dad plants a garden up there. He doesn't plant flowers. He plants fruit trees and herbs and things like that. And, I mean, it's a pretty good-sized garden, way up there in the middle of nowhere. And, and you get married. And he says, son, he said, I, here's what I need you to do for me. Help me, help me oversee my my, 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 my land and all my vast holdings, and I want you and your wife to move up there slap dab out in the middle of as far away from somewhere as you can be in nowhere. That sound great, right? And so Jacob goes up there. He takes his young bride with him. And they get up there, and Jacob builds a cabin, and 
and uh, everything's just going great, and, 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 and Jacob has responsibility, and his wife helps him. They go out, and they, you know, they prune the garden, and you know, if you're going to get the best yield from your plants and things, you've got to take care of them. There's a lot of work involved. And he goes out there, you know, and, and, uh, but at night, boy, they get in the cabin because, man, they They'll hear that at night. And you hear a mountain lion scream, sounds like a woman screaming. I mean, it just tingles you down to your toes. He hears wolves out there howling, hears bears grunting, and all those things. And so there's, I mean, it's, there's some stuff you've got to be careful, right? Sure. Now, let me ask you a question. How smart would Jacob be? He said, you know, sweetheart, said, man, tomorrow i got to go way to the other side of the garden over there. I am so tired, you know, and I, you know, and there's a ball game on tonight. I want to watch that ball game. And uh, how about you taking the pruning shears and you go all the way to the other side of the garden tonight and you sleep out there on the ground so you can start first thing in the morning. <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands of the women here that think their husband would ask them that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> So she dutifully, as a wife, she gets her little garden shears, you know, big weapon. And she goes, oh, who in their right mind would do that? I mean, you know, we have to send Jacob's dad up there, whip him a good one, say, man, what's wrong with you? His wife should say, sweetheart, I don't think that's a good idea. Why? Something might eat me. There's danger over there. You say, well, you know, we wouldn't do that. Well, he wouldn't do that. And I know Jacob wouldn't do that. He'd say, I mean, if he had to go over there anyway, man, he'd have, you know, he'd have them famous Wallace knives strapped on. He'd make his wife one about this big. And, I mean, they'd have guns with them and hand grenades and everything else and a great big old dog, and they'd drive over there in their tank. I mean, they're going to be protected. <laughs> they're going to be protected, right? Why do you think Adam let Eve wander off by herself? I've thought about that a lot. He, he's not with her when he, she's confronted by the serpent. You, you, read, you can read it in Genesis chapter 3. She, she's by herself. Adam somewhere shows up because she takes the fruit to him and he partakes of it. Adam had to know where that fruit came from. The Bible teaches us that we have a responsibility, men, to be vigilant. To walk circumspectly. And ladies, you have a similar responsibility. Maybe not within the same realm of responsibility that your husband does, but you do as well. We've got to be on our guard. Why? Because the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You see? We've got to be extremely careful and understand that one day when Christ's kingdom is established on the earth, boy, praise the Lord. Can you imagine? I'd I like to have a pet, mount, or a, a pet African lion. You know, feed him some grass and, you know, ride on his back and whatever the case may be. I don't know if the Lord's going to let us do that or not. But we're not going to have to worry about those things then. But we better be concerned about them now. And I'm not simply talking about wild animals. I'm talking about a devil that hates us and will do everything he possibly can to destroy us. Listen, let, let, me, let, me, let me introduce just a couple of thoughts here and then we've got to move on, all right? Moms and dads, be careful who you let your children associate with. 
It seems like the stories become more and more frequent nowadays of children being harmed by adults that were trusted. The Bible says give none occasion for the flesh. Don't give it the opportunity. You better make sure you know who your children are with. You know, they may not hurt your children physically, but they can use the ear gate and fill your child's mind with a bunch of foolishness and turn them away from the things of God. We need to be very careful. We need to be vigilant. Not only that, but we as individuals need to be vigilant for our own sake. If you have a problem with a certain place, don't go there. I mean, how, smart, how hard is that to understand? If you, have a, if you have a weakness in a certain area, stay away from it. Well, I used to do that before I got saved, and you know, I, I don't anymore, and I, I kind of miss it. Better get away from that. We need to be very careful. That, that peace is coming. That time is coming, but it's not here yet. There will come a time when peace and righteousness will fill the whole universe. I can't imagine what that's going to be like, especially in the day and time in which we live. Let me show you some Scripture, and then we're through for the day. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. You know, our history has witnessed one bloody war after another. I remember some years ago, I can't remember how long ago it was, but there was a, there was a, a fact out. They said that at that point in time in history, there were 68 different wars waging all around the world. 68. People killing people. We've got people killing people today around the world. They're waging one tribe against another simply because they're from different tribes. One nation against the other simply because they're from different nations. One nation against the other because one nation wants what the other nation has. Really. This goes on and on. One religious group warring against another. And there's probably more religious wars taking place today than any other kind. Oh, what about them Croats and the Serbians? Did you know that was a religious war? You need to study that one out. Find out who is killing who. We've got groups today like ISIS. Can you believe that we have people in the highest reaches of our administration that won't even use the word terrorist when they talk about groups like that? Does that indicate a problem to you? That indicates a problem to me. Anybody that gathers a bunch of people together that, that, that they claim are Christians, and you know as well as I do, Christian has become a generic term. But they'll gather those people together, march them out on a beach and cut their heads off on camera so they can show it to the world. That's not terrorist. Hey, how many times do you see the Apostle Paul lopping off heads in the New Testament? How many times did Peter? Peter must have been a powerful man. The Bible tells us that at one time he pulled a load of fish to shore that two boatloads of men couldn't lift out of the water. He's a powerful man. Peter was no wimp. He was a man. How many times do you see Peter lopping off heads? You say, we well, lopped off an ear. Yeah, well, that was a special situation. I believe he meant to hit Malchus right down the middle of the head, but he's a lousy aim. Maybe it was an angel deflected a little bit. But anyway, more amazing than that is after Jesus put the ear back on, they still took him. That's the amazing thing to me. How many times do we see John 
on the Isle of Patmos going on a, 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 a mission of subterfuge and knocking out, killing people that aren't Christians. You don't see, listen, true Christianity, true Christian people have never done that. And people that believe this book have always said, hey, you have the, you have the liberty to decide what you want to believe. But we live in a day and time today where if you name yourself as a Christian, they want to kill you. I, you know, they must drug those people. I mean, you, you, you get a group of, of 20, 25 big strapping men, and they kneel down in a pacifistic way and just allow it to happen. Man, I'd want to fight. But it happens all the time. We have wars everywhere. When's peace going to come? There's going to be someone false that's going to come and claim peace and safety. We're going to talk about him later on in our study. But notice what the Scripture says here in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. See, here we see that Paul truly was a southerner. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. By the way, that's 1 Corinthians 15. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What is great consolation in that passage? Great consolation. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Wow. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light affliction. Remember who's talking here. This is Paul. This is the man that was beaten, jailed, Stoned, shipwrecked, he calls it light affliction. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Verse 
Philippians chapter 3, we'll start at verse 20. For our conversation, our citizenship if you please, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. Colossians 3 and verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Speaking of this time that's coming. 2 Peter chapter 3. Just a couple more. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Wow, what a question. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless we... According to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's coming. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, I love this passage, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. One more passage. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. See, that's coming. That's coming. When the Son of Man comes into the throne or steps up before the throne of God, before the Ancient of Days, He receives those three things. Three things in particular at that point in history. We find out as we enter into verse 15 down through verse 28 that Daniel is troubled over this vision. And God sends a special messenger to explain things to him. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ did the same thing for you and I. When He ascended up into heaven, before He went, He said, I'll send you another comforter. And He'll teach you all things. If you and I have a difficulty understanding parts of the Bible today, it's our fault. It's not the Holy Spirit's fault. If you and I today would know this book and love this book, 
then we would have the answers that we need. Let's pray. The political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. Did you hear about the Fed? No. What about the Fed?
Dispatched to a re-education resort. 
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. And this is the American Independence Hour for Tuesday, ninth day of June, year of our Lord, 2015. My co-host is Frank Steffen. He'll be joining us in a moment. First, I'll do my standard disclaimer, semi-standard. I am a man made in God's image, as per Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I'm endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights, as per the Declaration of Independence, second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. Um, And I'm broadcasting from within the borders of the state of Texas, a member state of the Perpetual Union that's styled or named the United States of America. And this program is only intended for men and women who are made in God's image. Having said that, we can introduce Frank. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? Good. You can't complain too much, Ed. Uh, well, you could, good, but good hey, we, uh, I can. I will get to it. But 
It's been a good week for computer crashes. I've had one virus and one computer crash and lost some files. And oh, man. I You know, I, it's funny you mention that because just last week I had a hard drive failure. And I had to, um, well, I luckily did back up all my data. But <laughs> I had to uh, manually reinstall all my programs. It doesn't happen in a half hour, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And I couldn't use the handy-dandy automatic backup thing because, well, the hard drive was failing. So it wouldn't read it, being failing and all. You know, so, so much for that idea. So it's, uh, I got to say, though, it actually went smoother than it usually has in the past. Well, that means there's still more trouble coming then. Well, and when yesterday... Yeah. You know, yesterday it was 113 degrees here. 113 degrees in Oregon? Yep. Uh, and today it was only, um, what is it, 86 now outside. Well, I'm balmy 86. That's a big jump in one day, though. It was, no, I understand. It was harsh yesterday. Yeah. I mean, that's Dallas, Texas weather. Yeah, I understand. I used to do roofing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have too, and... And when I was, you do the roofing, it'd be 105 degrees walking around (laughs) in the shade here in Dallas. And you're up on the roof and the sun is beating down on your head. And it's reflecting back up off. I was working on commercial roofs. Mm -hmm. And it's reflecting back up at you from your feet. And the repairs I made were done with a torch that generated a ball of flame about two foot in diameter. I wound up working in 130-degree temperature, and I would sweat off a pound an hour. I'm still drinking as much water as I could choke down. I'd still lose a pound an hour while I was on the job, go out. And if I worked six hours when I came home after work, I was six pounds lighter than I was when I left for work in the morning. Get home at night, and I'd drink a bunch of, uh, I'd eat a bunch of watermelon and Drink fruit juice, apple juice, and the rest of that sort of thing. And I'd put the water weight back on that I'd lost during the day, and I'd be back up to whatever I was the next morning. But, I mean, I was sweating off a pound an hour, and it was always... We were much younger then. I, I'm not so sure how 130 <laughs> yeah, that's degrees true. would work now. That's true. You know what was good about that? And that was back when I was in my 40s. All right. I wasn't doing that when I wasn't just doing that, working that hard when I was in my 20s. It was in my 40s, and the result was when I stepped off that roof, if the temperature was 90 degrees or below, I was comfortable or maybe even chilly. Get a jacket, yeah. Yeah, yeah, get a jacket. It's down to 85, you know. But I could go out and play basketball with college kids. And I could, they were always better than me, they were better players than me. But they couldn't deal with the heat. And I was still running up and down, back and forth. I mean, it was no sweat for me. (laughs) 90 degrees was comfortable. I mean, that was, you know, I was like running in the fall air or something like that. So it was a good time. I'll be 40 again. Well, it'll be 60 again. What can I tell you, you know? Never thought I'd say that. but Yeah, no. One of these days you're going to be saying, oh, it'll be 70 again, you know? (laughs) Oh, I man. Could just get back to where I was when I was 70. I've got an article here that's kind of interesting. Um, it's one of the links that I sent you that involves scientists just found soft tissue inside a dinosaur fossil. 
Here's why that's so exciting. The article is in Vox. V-O-X is a science and health magazine. And the implication, of course, is that if they found soft tissue inside dinosaur bones, then they may have what they need to clone a dinosaur. I mean, this was the whole idea behind uh, Jurassic Park, is that they had found they were able to extract dinosaur DNA from millions of years ago, and they could it was still sufficiently intact where they could recreate the uh, the dinosaurs that existed. Are, are, are we the only ones that ever heard that phrase, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should? I don't know. It's, it's irresistible. What can I tell you? It's, you know, to it's, have dinosaurs? I could resist. Well, we're going to have... It, it'll be a situation where we won't necessarily have them here at Dallas, Texas, but we may create a dinosaur park out in Oregon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe the robots all come in handy to take care of the dinosaurs. But here's the point that's interesting about this. They are discovering that they can open up dinosaur bones and sometimes find soft tissue that's still more or less intact. I mean, there's been some degradation, but up until now they have thought that because the in fact here let me just read this section down below here it says for hundreds of years most paleontologists never considered that their fossils might preserve these sorts of microscopic soft tissue features it was assumed that the proteins and other molecules they'd made uh, they're made of would deteriorate in just a few million years <laughs> a million here a million there what's that a few million all right now they're discovering that some of these dinosaur bones may have soft tissue in them. And they are having to reconsider whether or not they're having to sit back and say, well, golly, I guess the soft tissue doesn't decay in millions of years. But is that the only explanation for what we're dealing with here? Well, unless dinosaurs aren't as old as they thought they were. That's the point. I mean, there'll be people that'll get on this from the creationist side, and they have argued that the dinosaur and man were have both been around at the same time, and dinosaurs aren't 65 million years old; they may be several thousand years old. Now, I'm not, I'm not taking a side one way or the other in terms of when the dinosaurs were actually here in terms of time, but how do you account? This is equivalent to saying you can put a hamburger outside on the back porch and it'll still be there, edible, <laughs> sometime next fall. I think if it's a Big Mac, that'll work. Yeah, it's probably true, especially <laughs> the fries. Yeah, that's probably what happened. The dinosaurs were actually made by McDonald's and they, they last almost as long as the French fries. <laughs> But, uh, I don't know, it's just interesting stuff. Well, I, you know, I've read a lot about the, uh, you know, carbon dating and all that. There's a lot of questions about it. You know, there's, there's just, and it's hard to, it's hard to know what's, because I'm certainly no scientist about, you know, carbon dating and all this, but scientists write things about it that are like, hmm, there's some questions how accurate this is, or if it's yeah, accurate at really all. Nobody really knows what's going on. I mean, the whole concept of evolution, 
Back in the 1960s, I saw a book, one guy just, he talked about the idea that man was evolved from animals. At that point, this was back in the 1960s, and I think the writer was Robert Ardry. I'm trying to remember, maybe African Genesis. I don't remember if that was his book or not. But one of the points he made is that at that point, all of the physical evidence that could be construed as supporting the idea that man has evolved from the animals, it could be carried in one box on one man's back. All right. Not it's an interesting theory, but there's not all that much evidence to support it. And a lot of people think that evolution is brilliant, that it's scientific. I mean, I deal with, there's one guy I deal with on my blog from time to time. He's a former graduate of Harvard Law School. And uh, he, he writes on the blog regularly to tell us how stupid we are. But he is a staunch believer in evolution. And people sit back and they say, oh, evolution is so scientific, you know. Well, evolution is interesting, and it's an interesting theory, and it might be correct, and it might not be, I don't know, but it is just a theory. Nobody's seen it happen. It's something that we possibly, we make inferences and we draw conclusions, but we don't know for a fact that, in, that evolution has actually explained how we got here and that we are merely evolved from primates and lemurs and whatever on down to amphibians and finally some sort of microorganisms in the ocean or something like that. Well, I think some of these monkeys owe us an explanation because, uh, you know, I'd like to know what compelled some of them to decide to evolve into man and others to just decide, nah, you know, that's not for me. I'm going to stay here in the jungle. <laughs> well, in retrospect, they may have been the smart ones. Yeah, well, they yeah. might have, but, you know. Some of the dumb ones said, I think I'm going to evolve into man. They said, I'm telling you, you'll be sorry. <laughs> you know, but you could just be here in the jungle, just swinging around from branches, fooling around with the ladies and rest that sort of thing. Not a big problem, but no. you got to invent the wheel and, uh, you know. This yep. is going to end badly. There were monkeys there at the time that said, this is going to end badly. Mark my words on that. Um, but that's, that, that really has always been my, you know, because I was taught evolution in public school just like everybody else. And, yep. you know, I, I thought, well, hmm, this is weird. So we slithered out of the ocean and then this and then that. And then there's a few missing parts. And, and then here we are. Well, hmm. And it's always been the thing, well, I don't get why some monkeys decided, no, that's not for me. Well, they're saying, of course, the evolution is presumes, it's not a decision per se, of course. I know you're just joking about that, but, um, you know, just survival of the fittest and a kind of continuous testing and, uh, you know, competition. And some live, some die, and some live, the ones that live reproduce, and the ones that die don't, and blah, blah, blah. The species changes over time. But the thing about evolution, one of the big things is it's ultimately a manifestation of the Big Bang Theory. The idea that the whole universe started at a single small point that exploded and one thing led to another, and we've got all these, all of the stars and the galaxies and whatever else we can, we're able to perceive in the universe. They are all expanding from the central point of this Big Bang. And I don't know if it was a guy by the name of Hubble that advanced the Big Bang theory or not, but it's been around for 
Uh, I don't know, 50 years, maybe more, I'm not sure. But the idea that the universe started that way. This is the alternative to creationism. The, uh, the creationism, of course, is the idea that God created the whole universe, you know, in six days and so on. People sit back and say, oh, that's crazy. The guy from Harvard on the, that talks about this. Matter of fact, we interviewed him on this program one time back six months ago or thereabouts. Um, he says, you know, it's crazy to believe in an invisible God. He doesn't believe in God. That's crazy talk. He believes in evolution, which is very scientific, but evolution is problem, a couple of problems. First off, evolution means change. That's what it means. If, some, if A evolves into B, A changes into B. Species A mm -hmm. changes into species B, which later evolves or changes into species C, into species D, and so on. If evolution is about change. The problem evolution has is it can't explain creation. It can explain how A changed into B, but it can't ultimately explain where we have A in the first place. Where did we get the first little cell that started to uh, ultimately evolve? And that's a question that evolution can't answer, and they have to deal with it as a matter of faith. They just, well, it, it just happened. There was a cell there, and it evolved and split or did whatever it was going to do here. And Pretty soon we had two different kinds of cells, and they started competing, and one thing led to another, and here we are. And this is all after the universe just decided to explode into existence. Yeah, and here's the interesting <laughs> thing about here's the interesting thing about the Big Bang theory, which is ultimately where theory of evolution is based on that Big Bang theory. Um, I don't remember if it was Hubble, the guy, I don't know who created the Big Bang theory, but it's all well accepted, yada yada. Except after he postulated, whoever the author was, after he postulated the theory, years later, technology advanced to where we could begin to make credible estimates of the total mass and energy in the universe. And couldn't do it at the time they first advanced the Big, the big Bang Theory, and everybody jumped on and said, Yay, the Big Bang Theory, that explains what we've got. We don't have to believe in God, we'll believe in the Big Bang Theory. Uh, well, the theory made a lot of sense, and everybody fell for it, and then... 20, 30, 40 years later, whenever, I don't know, I don't know the timeline on this. But at some later date, somebody else did some calculations and said, wait a second, we've got a problem here. The Big Bang Theory, as expressed mathematically, will only work if we have 20 times more matter and energy in the universe than we are currently able to detect they had to revise the theory to say, well, the Big Bang, about 5%, we can see uh, or detect about 5% of the energy and mass in the universe. And we therefore know that there's another 95% that we can't see, touch, taste, waste. Uh, you know, we, 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 don't even, we don't even know what, but we call it dark matter. The reason we have dark matter is to make the original equations that supported the Big Bang Theory make them work. 
If there's no dark matter, the Big Bang Theory doesn't work. And the dark matter, we can't see it, we can't measure it, we can't, there is, we, it's purely a hypothetical. We, it's been crazy. Well, there must be dark matter. That's why our, our theory is only off by 95%, you see. Well, this is the theory that underlies evolution. And the people that say you're crazy to believe in an, in an invisible God are the same ones who believe that 95% of the universe is invisible to us. <laughs> it has to be there. Oh, I believe in, oh, oh, yeah, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I believe in evolution. God, that, no, that's silliness, you know. So, you know, in the you know, it's not as scientific as a lot of people well, suppose. it's not, and that's the question that I, you know, because... I don't care about theories. People can believe what they'd like. But when you go to a school and you say, okay, listen, we're going to teach this to you as though it was fact. Yep. We'll call it a theory and all that, but we're going to, we're going to present it as though it's, this is it. And we are not going to tolerate any you know, dissension. You're not going to talk about creation in the public schools. They won't allow Oh, that you anymore. can a little bit if you want to, but we're all going to laugh at you and ridicule you. But uh, if you want to, go ahead. Don't even allow it. You know, well, I, I understand. been working in that direction. So when does a theory become religion? Well, when it's primarily... Well, well truth of the matter is, any theory is essentially religious insofar as the theory ultimately rests on belief rather than factual evidence. Right. And, and you know, there's a lot of... You've got to take a lot of leaps of faith on some of these theories that they I teach understand as that. fact. Now, why, do, why do people take those leaps of faith to support evolution, for example? Uh, well, I don't understand it myself, but I think well, that it's just a lack of... Here's one of the things that's interesting to me. If I understand correctly, the uh, oh, the monkey trial in, I don't remember, Carolinas, one of the Carolinas, I don't remember, the southeastern United States, I think it came down around 1914, all right, where they, the court ruled that, you know, we had to let them teach evolution. 1906 is when the Food and Drug Administration announced that uh, they defined food and drugs in the, both food and drugs, in the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act in terms of man or other animals, presuming that man is an animal. The 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act started that presumption in this country, to the best of my knowledge. And it's there. You can read it. You can, you can again, Google 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, and look for Section 6, and you'll see that they define food in terms of man or other animals, and they define drugs in terms of man or other animals, which means they, they operate on the presumption that we are all just animals. And they've been doing it from 1906, about the same time that they had what they came to be called the Higgs monkey trial or somebody's monkey trial, I can't remember, but it was about someone teaching biology and teaching evolution in, bi in biology, and uh, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. It was supposedly contrary to what the school board wanted, and he taught it as science and so on. Um, what I'm trying to get to here is that this whole concept of evolution means that you and I are just animals. 
if you're evolved, if you are evolved from monkeys or whatever, then you are not a man or woman made in God's image. And if you're not, I don't believe you're entitled to any of the God-given unalienable rights that are declared in our Declaration of Independence, which says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and I believe they meant men made in God's image, they didn't say that expressly, but I believe that's what they meant back in 1776, because I think that's all there was. All right? When they're talking about men, they're talking about men and women made in God's image. All men are made in God's image. Uh, all, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you're not a man made in God's image, I don't think you have access to those rights. I believe, I strongly suspect, and I can't prove it, but I strongly suspect that the reason they mandate that you must learn evolution in school and come to believe it is so that you will accept your status as an animal in the global plantation. Now, a lot of people are going to sit back and say, well, it's a crazy conspiracy theory. Well, it might be, but it is at least, you know, it's, for me, it's consistent with the evidence and the timeline and whatever. And so, for me, I suspect that the reason evolution is mandatory and creation is shunned is that they don't want you to understand that that government treats you as an animal. And as such, you have no meaningful rights. Well, and and that one step further is that, well, in that case, Congress and the United States government would be in violation of the First Amendment. Because they are establishing a religion. There. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They're going to something and identifying that religion that might be paganism. Man, right. Well, whatever. From what I understand, I haven't studied enough where I can come up with an opinion, let alone accurately decide what it is. But they're funded, this man or other animals thing, is something completely contrary to the Christian and Jewish faiths. Sure, and it also it also goes along with all the other evidence of everything else they're doing with the, you know, the public school doctrine of evolution and the Big Bang and all that. I mean, it all it all ties together to where I, I don't think it's that big of a stretch to show the evidence that hey, you have established a religion. Well, I think the stretch, the hard part is sitting back and saying, if you look at this evidence, if it is evidence. These are at least facts to be considered. Look back at it and you see, look, they started calling people animals with the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act. And it's hard to believe that they've been doing this for over a century and getting away with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to believe that there is a conspiracy that's over a century old to try to reduce us to the status of animals. You know, look back if if you said, oh, Hillary Clinton or uh, whoever, you know, is trying to make us be animals, right? Well, we can deal with that. But the idea that they were doing it even a hundred years ago, it presupposes that there's some people out there who've been acting against this government in a way that's been almost astonishingly successful and brilliant. And they've been doing it for over a century, and the vast majority of the people, I mean, there isn't one person in a thousand that really, that probably suspects what might be going on here. 
really. I mean, with, with you know, with any, in any depth of suspicions with any depth. That's what's, to me, that's what's hard to believe. If we could point to somebody modern who was trying to do this, yeah. But this this implies an extraordinary conspiracy, and for me, it's all just evidence of spiritual warfare. Yeah, this is evidence of a battle that's been going on since Genesis. All right, we got this problem with this snaky dude, you understand? And uh, the battle has been ongoing, and uh, I don't know what to say about it at times. It's astonishing. And this man and other animals thing also goes to the point of voluntarily accepting it. Nobody's forcing anybody to say, okay, look, we're going to put this collar on you, and you're going to be an animal now. Uh, Mm -hmm. People are just being trained over a long period of time to simply accept that this is the way it is. Yeah, we all came from monkeys. Yeah, okay. But if you accept that, then you are not a man made in God's image. And that's it's important. You know, one of the differences between the theory of evolution and creationism is we can argue which one is more true, which one has more factual support, but there's verses in the Bible a couple of times, by their fruit you shall know them, talking about how you can judge trees and how you can judge people and so on. You can judge them by what the consequences of what their acts are, what their fruit is. You get what I'm saying. What do they do? Then we know whether they're good or bad. <clears throat> when you deal with the theory of evolution, under which we are all just livestock, right? There's no big deal about marching the Jews off into concentration camp in Germany. They're just animals. What's the problem? You understand? And in fact, Germany passed the 1935 Nuremberg Laws. And you can look them up, 1935 Nuremberg Laws. And you'll see if you read them that they declare, I can't remember what section, but they declare the Jews to be untermenschen. Unter means under, mensch means man, subhuman. They declared the Jews to be animals back in 1935. And once they had that legal foundation, it was completely legal to catch the Jews the same way you catch livestock, bring them into the concentration camps. The only difference between them and the cows and the pigs and whatever is we didn't, after we killed them, we didn't eat them. Well, and and the United Nations has taken on that law and and gone you know steps further because they have detailed plans about how oh hey uh, three quarters of the people here have to go away uh, so we can have a nicer planet uh, we mm-hmm. have overpopulation well what does that mean I mean <laughs> really I mean you know this is this is planned genocide you know. You know, and it's the same. And then you go and say, well, gee, they've been calling us animals from this time. And, you know, the Nazis did the same thing. I mean, we see a pattern here. I understand, but it's astonishing and hard to believe. And I stumbled into it. You know, people have heard me talk about it on the program, just in case you haven't heard it before. Briefly, I was a defendant in a lawsuit back in 2006. I was added as the seventh and last defendant in a lawsuit that started in 2001. And it involved the man, if we were charged with the manufacture and distribution of a controlled substance. The controlled substance was colloidal silver. My great crime was I was the, uh, I was the fiduciary for a trust that leased some computers and 
tables and chairs to a corporation that manufactured colloidal silver. I was brought in as a as a defendant on this case, and we were all threatened with fines of $25,000. Each of the seven defendants, husband and wife and their corporation, another man, his corporation, and his trust, and finally me. I read the relevant law and realized, and I, and I saw the definitions of drugs, which was critical to the case at the federal level and in the here, here at the Texas level. And, it, and, the, and the definitions uh, include the phrase man or other animals. Well, it doesn't. If I said a cow or other animals, makes perfect sense. We know that animals is a generic description of that includes cows and pigs and fish and goats and uh, everything else in there, or virtually everything else. And if I say a horse or other animals, yeah, we know the horse is an animal. If I say a rock or other animals, makes no sense because we know a rock is not an animal. So when we say man or other animals. The only way that makes sense is if they presume that you are an animal. It didn't say man or animals. It said man or other animals. It presumes you're an animal. Yeah. Well, the well, consequences are if you're an animal, you don't have any significant rights. You know, and that wasn't just a, a uh, mistake either because they, uh-huh. they worded in a different way also uh, yep. animals other than man. That's right. You know, so they've they've actually got a we found, sure that yeah, this is what we're saying here. We found twenty three or twenty six separate items in Texas and federal law that applied in our case. They're like the CFRs, Code of Federal Regulations, and federal definitions and Texas definitions. And we found something like twenty three or twenty six. I don't remember separate instances where the law referred to man or other animals or animals other than man in this case. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, I, I, the guy that the Harvard graduate, law school graduate, he, he continues to insist that, you know, this is crazy. It couldn't be. First-year law student can tell you this isn't possible. Um, there's no way that the man or other animals thing could work, but it did. I, I advanced that argument, and they ultimately dropped the case after investing six years and nearly a half million dollars in prosecuting in the pretrial inv- investigations and pretrial hearings. Government had a, uh, nearly half a million dollars in that case, and they just dropped it, and they never said why. They just stopped coming, all right? And we believe it's because this man or other animals thing is something they don't want to face in public. Well, it's well, that's what we're says. talking about here. You know, it says, it says what it says. It's I know, and it means what it means. <laughs> huh? You know, I, I, very, mean, I can understand somebody not wanting to believe it because it's like, Gosh, this is bad. This is really bad. You know, I mean, there's been people at this for hundreds of years trying to, you know, uh, convince everybody they're animals for whatever reason, and uh, this is no good. But, you know, it is what it is, and it says what it says. Words do mean things, and a first-year law student knows words mean things. Well, the one thing about it, though, first-year law students aren't all that smart, or else they wouldn't need (laughs) second-year law and then third-year law, and then actual experience out in the field for, you know, a decade or more before you really get up to, you get up to speed. Um, where was I going with this? So here's the point. I was going to go on. The point I wanted to make is, by their fruits you shall know them. If we subscribe to the theory of evolution, it leads us straight to the doors of Auschwitz. There is no 
compelling reason why we cannot hang, execute, boil in oil. What difference does it make? It's all survival of the fittest, right? And if we happen to have access to the oil, then the rest of you folks are going to get boiled. That's all. No big deal. You're just livestock. You're just animals. While that under the theory of evolution. And it opens the door for concentration camps. It opens the door for genocide. But if you go into the end of the creation theory and you read Genesis 9-6, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, On the sixth day God created man in his image and gave man dominion over the animals, which means that you can't be an animal and be a Christian or a Jew. All right? They made it abundantly apparent that the animals are one class and man is another one. Why? The distinguishing feature is that man is made in God's image and the rest of the animals are not. We can kill the cows and the pigs and the sheep and the goats and the, you know, the birds and the trout and whatever and have them for dinner. No problem. But you can't kill a man. Why? Because he's made in God's image. And it says that at Genesis 9-6. Evolution will allow Auschwitz. Auschwitz is the Auschwitz is a logical con, con, uh, consequence of adopting the theory of evolution. But under the theory under the under creationism, you can't kill a man for any reason because he's made in God's image, unless he's violated God's law in a way he's committed a capital crime. He can be he can be executed for committing, but not just go out there and arbitrarily say kill him and him and him and him and her and so on. Can't do that. Why? Because he's made in God's image. The point is the theory of evolution doesn't offer you any protection other than survival of the fittest. If somebody who's stronger than you or more psychotic comes after you and knocks you on the head and kills you, no big deal. Survival of the fittest. Under the theory of creation, you can't do that. I know people do. You know, I mean, people violate the law, but the fundamental reason murder is a sin is because man and man alone is made in God's image. I'll give you another variation on this. It's also the reason, in my opinion, why homosexuality is an abomination to God. You engage in homosexuality or sodomy with a, with a, with you know a member of the opposite sex. What you're doing is you are sodomizing an image of God. You understand? In my opinion, and it doesn't say this in the Bible, it does say, Genesis 9, 6, you can't kill a man because he's mad in God's image. Well, it stands to reason you also probably can't sodomize a man or a woman because they're made in God's image. That's the problem, right? And under creationism, we shouldn't have any sodomy. Under evolution, no problem. You know, you can be a uh, you can you can engage in as much sodomy as you can get away with. So, well, and again, you know, you can you know, this was one of the one of the first things that, you know, because the United Nations seemed to be a bigger issue back, you know, 20 years ago or so and uh you know, I I I read a lot of UN documents and uh you know, if you really sit down and read some of these United Nations official documents, uh, <laughs> you're going to have a little different opinion of the United Nations as this yep. benevolent, you know, world, uh, you know, peace organization, because mm -hmm. they're far from that if you read what they have to say. Uh, and 
what their end ends in genocide. Yeah. You know, that's their plan. Yeah. That is where they, they want to end up, clear in this planet of, of three-quarters of the people, which means killing them. Sure. Yeah, that's the only way you're going to get rid of us. We're not going voluntarily. You know. How many of you would like to put a gun to your head this evening and you buy your own bullets, of course? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in order, we've got to have a little more population than we can handle, and therefore it's income. Do the right thing and... You know, put well, yourself out of our misery. You know, they are creating a situation on many different levels with, uh, you know, the genetically modified organisms they call food mm -hmm. are damaging people yeah, I know. In, in ways that I don't think we even know yet. And, uh, you know, there's... Then I'm there's sure the we don't know, but I wonder if they know. Yeah, they probably do. And then there's the pharmaceuticals and the yep. uh, vaccinations. And, you know, it's already been really proven that they are putting sterilization drugs in these vaccinations. And, yeah. you know, so it's like, okay, then you read their documents, and, and, and it, it really makes sense. I mean, they're, they're following their plan. No, I understand. You know, and that's, what's, that's a very important point on this, because when you start to look at this and you see what's been going on for at least a century in this country in terms of this man or other animals thing, somebody behind the scenes was not only powerful but brilliant enough to see we will plant seeds in that will affect people's system of values. I mean, the average man, if you are greedy and, you know, ambitious and whatever, yeah, you can do some bad things. All right, we're all capable of that. But who is capable of sitting back and saying, I will plant ideas today? All right, I'm going to plant them in an official way that nobody's going to notice, nobody's going to care about. But these ideas will have logical consequences. They will, once we plant these ideas, they will lead people to their own destruction. It takes an extraordinary kind of brilliance. I mean, you can sit back and look at it, and it's hard to avoid using the word diabolical to describe whoever it is uh, that's responsible for this. Well, and, and not only diabolically genius, it's also a long-term stick-with-it uh, sort of thing that you don't yeah. generally see. No. They're up to something, and it's not just to get a new Cadillac another million dollars, a new girlfriend with a bigger set of bazooms. That's not what these people are after. Something keeps them in line. Something keeps them motivated over centuries to keep pushing for this kind of objective. And the only thing that will hold you together for that period of time is some sort of religion. It's I... not about the money. It's not about the broads. It's not about the new cars. It's about some sort of religious, some sort of religion that they, the, 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 the proponents, they, they believe in deeply, and they are prepared to work over centuries to fight for their religion. And they do it all behind the scenes. Nobody catches on. No, they don't get credit for it. I mean, if I were capable of planting enough seeds where we could change people's mindset in a meaningful way, over a period of a decade or 50 years or something like that. I'd want to get credit for that. I'd, I'd want, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I wrote that. Yeah, I, 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 I did that. I'd want credit. Not these people. We don't even know who they are. 
Yeah. Huh? And very strange. Very strange. And again, you look at it, it is so incomprehensible that you ultimately, that at least I am ultimately, it pushed me to say, oh my gosh, we're engaged in spiritual warfare. That's what this is. This is good against evil in the cosmic sense, in the sense that, you know, we talk about the Bible and righteousness and wickedness and so on. That's what we're looking at here. And we go through life and we think, oh, life is all just a matter of how much money to get and what are your mortgage payments and how much can you afford on a new car and the rest of that sort of thing. No, no. We are all in in the midst of spiritual warfare that's been going on basically since time began. All right, at least at least on this earth, at least, you know, again, uh, thousands of years, same battles. And I don't know. My my feeling is that it's uh it it's coming to an area where it's time for people to decide. You know, I mean, people have been able to fence it for the last what? forever, you know, except for some, you know, periods of time where, no, you don't get to fence it, you get to get destroyed now, Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, everybody's just cruised along, and oh, yeah, okay, well, you know, oh, sure, I believe in God, and, you know, kind of, but now it seems as though there's a division, because I've never seen as much hostility towards Christianity in my I understand life. that. You know, and, and just 10 years ago, people were already, you know, they were talking about it, and people were going, ah, that could never happen in America, that would never happen, this is a Christian nation, and on and on, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Well, it doesn't seem so much like that anymore. No. Not at all. And not only, you know, it would be one thing if you could say, oh, okay, it's degenerated a little bit, but it's not going to, de- it won't degenerate anymore. Nobody believes that. No. Okay? The momentum is moving against the Christian faith. Now, how far it's going to go remains to be seen, but for the moment, you sit back and say, oh, my God. And I think, from my perspective, I don't think people look at the the faith they have in things like evolution, for example, or in the uh, the Big Bang Theory. It's just people treat it as it's just an interesting, an interesting concept. Interesting theory. It's like watching a science fiction movie on TV. They got something cool. This is a new. They got a new. They got a new kind of alien. All right, and this one's really cool. You know, it's. But nobody thinks it's real. No one thinks it has real consequences. Well, it does. What we're dealing with right now has enormous consequences, and at least part of what's happening here. You know, we see. Pictures, cartoons of where Satan or some demon or, you know, somebody with a tail and hooves and whatever has got a pitchfork and pushing people into hell. But that's not the way it works. We see we see these stories about these covens that are meeting out in the dark, you know, on the full moon or whatever. And some somebody's old farm, and they're meeting in secret and dancing around a fire, and they're devil worshippers, and God only knows what they're doing out there, and the rest of that sort of thing. Look, if the best Satan can do is put some sort of a coven of people dancing around a fire in the dark, he is nobody worth worrying about. 
the covenants aren't the deal. The, the, the problem is in positions of power that attracts psychopaths and wicked people. And I'm not saying everybody in a position of power meets that description, but more than a few do. And I think we're getting pretty close to everybody. I don't. I don't. I don't follow. What do you mean? What do you say? Well, when you oh. said I don't think everybody in positions of power is is necessary. No, I understand. But, that. I think we're it, but it's clear. not an aberration. It's taken for granted right now that it's okay to be corrupt. Just get the money. That's all. All right, got to break the law. Who cares about breaking the law? I'm not. I'm not here to advocate all laws should be obeyed. I mean, there's plenty of laws I don't care for and the rest of that sort of thing, but there's a mindset right now where people just sit back and say, oh, we don't have to obey any of it. All i got to do is get more money, more money, more money, and, and, and it is, justifies anything. For the most part, even the general public knows it. Every, every poll of what we would you know, regard as the sheeple, the uh, low-information voter, whatever, even they say, 93% of them say, no, we don't trust Congress. Yeah, I know. You know that's 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 a significant amount to but say. But they're not going to do anything about it. No, we just don't trust them. We, we know don't they're lying. Them. We're too apathetic to care. Yeah, but we know they're I, lying. Everything they say is a lie. It's yeah, well, it pretty much is. You know. Um, in fact, just just as an aside, I've got one of the one of the things. There was an article from uh, dealing with Hillary Clinton just in just today, and she is moving to the left. Because Bernard, whatever his name is, uh, coming out of Vermont. Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, he's coming on strong in the Wisconsin straw poll. She had something like 290 votes, and he had 202. So she only beat him 49 to 41% out of 400 votes or 500 votes cast. But she is allegedly moving to the left. And what's in order to try to cut the ground. Sanders is more liberal than she is, so in order to cut the ground from under Sanders, she's going to move to the left. And it just struck me, we've got to cheer here for the politicians. Lie to the left. Lie to the right. Stand up. Sit down. Lie, lie, lie. I don't know if that rings yeah. your bell. Um, but just lie. I don't care. They'll lie to the left. They'll lie to the right. It doesn't matter. It's just taken for granted. You know, there was a time in this country where Hillary Clinton couldn't get into most homes. She would be shunned like a scarlet woman. No, no problem. Here comes Hillary. You guys, Bill... Bill was uh, Congressman Dannemeyer, identified something like 26 people in the early 90s who had been close to Bill Clinton who had died under violent and or mysterious circumstances. And the list later went on to something like 40 or more. I don't know what the final list was. I don't think there's they're a high done. Prob- there's a high probability that Bill Clinton is responsible for murdering a number of people. I won't say there's evidence of that, but there's, there's, there's enough to raise some inferences on it. I, I could come up with a theory. Wicked, wicked. And and does anybody care? Well, I mean, look at Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was actually impeached. Now, the Senate did not find him guilty, but he was impeached. And mm-hmm. he was impeached for basically what amounts to an immoral act. 
You know, I mean, he should have went to prison for a lot of other things. But what they decided that they were going to yeah, that, that he's probably sitting there when they tried to say, "This all you got <laughs> for you know this for all you got on me," <laughs> you know. But I mean, at least it was like, "Oh my gosh, that's unacceptable." What he did, it's unacceptable. Yeah. You know, we're going to at least okay, we're not going to find him guilty, but we're going to shame him basically, and uh, as, yeah. if, as if that was possible. But now, both. Bill and Hillary are elder, respected statesmen when they should have been put on an island somewhere and said, look, we don't ever want to see you again. Mm-hmm. I understand, and they're ripping off the, the, the profiting. While she was Secretary of State, she was apparently selling political favors, and Bill was taking the payment mm-hmm. in the form of uh, $500,000 for a speech here yep. and there. Right. And they pretty much got. I mean, I've read quite a bit about that, and they pretty they pretty much got her. I mean, you go well. Let's see now. Okay, Bill got paid five hundred grand for a speech, and then the next day, you changed your mind on a major trade deal, and it just happened to be benefiting the guy that paid Bill. It's what we call the appearance of impropriety. It's not really impropriety. It's just the appearance. It's a kind of a coincidental thing. You understand? Yeah. 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 And it's amazing because, I mean, I, I What think... I'd like to know is we see enough of these incidences of, a, of appearance of impropriety. When do we see instances of the appearance of propriety? Are there any instances right now where so, oh my gosh, that congressman looked like he's an honest man? How often do you see that? And the answer is not very often. I can't think of a time, any time recently, because, I mean, look what's going on right now. You've got just, just, it seems like a few months ago, you know, the Republicans won this great victory. They were going to save Washington, and thank God they're there. And now what are they doing? They're, no. they're they're pushing this TPP. I mean, for the Democrats are a little more. Yeah, you know, the Republicans are working closer with Obama than the Democrats. Yeah, it's it's and and only a few months ago, you know, it's like oh, Obama's Satan, and we about to come in here and save the day, and you got to vote for all of us, or else it's, we're doomed, doomed. I tell you, and so everybody bought it. Now they're in there and. Uh, it's the Democrats going, now, wait a minute, maybe we ought to slow down with this. And the the Republicans are, no, no, full steam ahead. I know. You know, damn the torpedoes and that and that iceberg. Full speed ahead. Yeah, damn the torpedoes, the iceberg, the drones, the nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, we're going this direction, and it may be crazy, but we're going to do it. Only different, only thing is, is why don't you ride on the ship and we'll wait back here? Yeah, we'll watch. We'll watch <laughs> yeah, we'll sit back here on the land and watch while you do this. We're going to take a break here in a few minutes, and uh, and when we come back for the second hour, we'll have some other odds and ends to talk about. But one of the things we're going to talk about, I'll just give you a clue right now. There's an article in the New York Times from May 24th entitled, Final Word on the U.S. Law Isn't, Supreme Court Keeps Editing. All right? And the first head, the first line here says, the Supreme Court has been quietly revising its decisions years after they were issued, altering the law of the land without public notice. 
You were that, Frank? You know, I'd, I'd heard of this, and I never really have looked into it much, but I, I either heard you mention it before or somebody I else. may have. I might have mentioned it, but I didn't have the article in front of me when I did, I'm pretty sure. Somehow that seems like it would be illegal. Oh, it's illegal. It's probably treasonous. If you could identify whatever those changes were, look, the Supreme Court's going to make a decision, and that's supposed to be the law. And then the Supreme Court, and they're not just talking about going back last week's determination. They're talking about going back years and deleting segments of the law, of their decisions. They find these the previous courts have decided cases in particular ways, and they said, oh, that's awkward. That's, that's, that's going to inhibit our ability to change the Constitution. So they just delete segments of case law from previous courts. I don't know how far back this goes, but I'm led to believe by the article that we're talking maybe a couple of decades, maybe more. They're wonder. just rewriting the law. You've got to wonder how the... You know, and throughout history we've heard of other instances of this, you know, in other civilizations where they've just gone in and, you know, burned down libraries and said, that yeah, I understand. Know, we're going to change this. Same thing. Same thing. That's exactly what we're talking about. They are rewriting our history. And this is part of the same idea we've been talking about a little bit earlier about how someone with extraordinary intelligence can go in. You know, the average person says, oh, big deal. They changed some damn Supreme Court decision. Who cares? No, it'll move the world, and it will continue to do so over the course of decades. Uh, it, you change the law. Was, here's what the law said. We're going to change that. Wait it out. And I would bet that they are pretty... Uh, Adept. Well, yeah, they're pretty obscure with it, that you wouldn't necessarily... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing to find a story. Right. They've been at this for some time, apparently, but uh, I don't know. Let's take a break. And for some commercials, and we'll come out and kick this one in the back a little bit. We'll also get into the Zufavosky, I can't pronounce the name. Uh, there's a case that we'll discuss from the Supreme Court um, and some of the implications of that. I'm Alfred Addis here with Frank Steffen. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, it has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. 
There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Addis, here with Frank Stefan on the American Independence Hour. We've been talking, we just barely got into uh, a big subject that we probably won't spend much time on, because there's not much you can really say. It's like, you know, seeing someone being beheaded. This is so grisly and so just astonishing. All you can do is gasp, practically. Here's the article again from the New York Times, and the headline is, Final Word on U.S. Law Isn't. They mean the final word isn't the final word. And they go on and say, Supreme Court keeps editing. And that's even a polite name for it. Is it editing, or are they intentionally changing the law? Is that all this is, is editing? Again, the Supreme Court has been quietly revising its decisions years after they were issued, altering the law of the land without public notice. Most changes are neither prompt nor publicized, and the court's secretive editing process has led judges and law professors astray, causing them to rely on passages that were later scrubbed from the official record. All right? Now, what... I go up and I read cases from the Supreme Court. I download them off of Find Law. What confidence can we have? I'm looking at cases and I'm relying on things that I read. How can I rely on it when the Supreme Court is going back after the fact? Say, wait, we're going to change that. That's no longer working for us. We're going to make this. Here's another. It goes on. It says, unannounced changes have not reversed decisions outright, but they have withdrawn conclusions on significant points of law. These guys are rewriting history. Um, let's see, the large, larger point said Jeffrey L. Fisher, law professor at Stanford, is that the Supreme Court decisions are, pa- are parsed by judges and scholars with exceptional care. In Supreme Court opinions, every word matters, he said, when they're changing the words of the opinions, they're basically rewriting the law. 
And my response is basically, they're not basically rewriting the law. That's exactly what they're doing. And they have no authority to write law because they're not in the legislative branch. Huh? And this is another one of those situations that is simply appalling. These guys should be charged for trees with cherry treason. Every, every Supreme Court judge who's participated in this, charge them. If they're found guilty, hang them. Hang them. Not one or two, but the whole darn crew. Past, present. All right? If they're, are they retired, but they were involved in it, try them anyway. And yet, I guarantee you, the whole world is, when I say something like that, the rest of the world is basically saying, oh, that's crazy talk. We can't, we can't try government officials for treason. They're here to help us. They give us free lunches. So we've got to support them. So in any case, they're changing the law. They leave us, how can you rely on the law? What is the law? You know, is it, is it reasonable to sit back and say, I know what the law is? Is that even possible anymore? How can we have confidence that we know what the law is when we read it, particularly off, elect, or off of, uh, of electronic sources? If you can find yourself an old law book that was published 100 years ago, yeah, now you got something. Um, you know, you may be able to say, okay, this is paper, can't be easily revised, but with the digital, with the digital records and archives, it's easy to go back. If you don't like the precedent that's been previously set by your court or previous court, just go, go back and erase it. That's all. We don't have to listen to that anymore. We've moved on from that point. Well, one thing I find interesting at the bottom of this thing is uh, four legal publishers are granted access to change pages that show all revisions. Those documents are not made public, and the court refused to provide copies to the New York Times. Yeah. They won't tell you what changes they've made. And we should be entitled to know so we can find out. You know, I mean, this is just, it's, this is an astonishing story. I, it's the sort of thing that you see. I can remember seeing some science fiction movie years, decades ago, where they're talking about rewriting history. And to some extent, uh, 1984, mm-hmm. they deal with yep. re- rewriting history. And the average person doesn't care. We don't study history. What difference does it make? What time, do they, what time is lunch? What time is dinner? What time is the bars open and what time do they close? That's all we care about. People who really want to make a difference are changing the words. And the rest of us are caught in those changes. Well, and you know, you've got Hillary Clinton up there. One of her most recent famous statements is, what difference does it make? Yeah, and and. Well, what that was months ago, not years, not decades. That was months ago. What difference does it make? Yeah, it's old news. Didn't happen. Didn't happen the last couple hours. It's old news. And we're talking about dead bodies. So of course she's not going to much care about rewriting the law. You know when she will if she can. She gets to it and the rest of it. But she's not. You know, it. It's just a question. She's well enough connected. She doesn't care what the law says. Well, yeah, that's. That's true. For her, the law is just a recommendation. That was something huh? that applies to other people. The Lucy used no, it was it was in Ghostbusters, and someone was talking about the law. And I think it was 
I don't remember. Might have been Dan Aykroyd. I don't remember. And so it's more of a recommendation than a law, you know. <laughs> yeah, she, you know, but the point also is, I think not very many years ago, she wouldn't have got the reception from such a statement that she got now, where people are like, yeah, yeah, well, what difference does it make? You know, uh, what is is uh, whatever. And why doesn't it make a difference? I don't know. Because the people are apathetic. Well, yeah. I mean, This ultimately goes back and lays at the feet of the American people. Hillary can do virtually anything she wants to do. What difference does it make? She knows that. Why? Because we have lost our moral compass and we're not capable of moral outrage anymore. What difference does it make? I'm making money. I'm getting laid, whatever it is. I'm getting drunk. I'm getting drugs, whatever it is that you're trying to do. What difference does it make how you go about it? And everybody just winks and laughs and moves on. And it's all wrong, and it's taking us to a place that none of us really are going to want to go to. Yeah, and what would what would be the, uh, I mean, is there any recourse for this sort of thing here that they're doing at the Supreme Court? I mean, okay, fine. If you're changing spelling errors, I get it, okay? You don't want yeah, to understand for history, and, you know, you want to make your spelling right. But if you're changing words and deleting parts of your opinion, I mean, is there any, I, I wonder if there's any recourse. I'd say it's fraud. I'd say it strips us of our ability. We are now being ruled by men rather than ruled by law because the law has become plastic and it's like a lump of clay. We can make a dish out of it today and tomorrow we can make a jug out of it. And the day after that, we can make a sculpture of, uh, I don't care, General Washington, George Washington. We can make a bust of George Washington. Just take that clay and make it whatever works. Whatever we need today, we can make it out of the clay. We have no law we can rely on. We are being ruled by men, not ruled by law. And no one is getting angry about this. Nobody's screaming and shouting. And as long as we don't scream and shout, Hillary is right. What difference does it make? The public doesn't give a damn. Well, honestly, I really, honestly, I don't think that many people know about this with the Supreme Court. No, no, I understand that. And it's just an astonishing, astonishing story. If I had heard that they were doing it to one or two or five cases, I would be, you know, shocked. But this is a standard procedure. This is like going back and changing the markers that say, here's where your land is. You used to have five acres of land, but we've moved the stones, and now you have three acres of land. And you're sitting around saying, well, golly, I thought I had five acres. Well, no, no, you know, look where the stones are. You know. It's always been this way. Yeah, yeah. The Honorable Supreme Court. Do you know uh, one thing that I learned a long time ago, and I learned it with, and I've come to find out it's with, uh, I'd say, a lot of government agencies. But I learned it at the public school uh, system, that no matter what the issue, and no matter how many people have actually called and complained, they are trained to tell you, well, okay, we'll pass this on, but you know, you're the only one that's complained so far. And what that does is set in people's minds that, oh, I must be the oddball troublemaker, yep. and uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should shut up. Maybe, 
you know, maybe this isn't that big of a deal. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm just, you know, going overboard or something. Yep. I agree with you. You know, I've seen that when we used to have our Citizens for Legal Reform meetings here in Dallas. We had the biggest meetings in the country. We're averaging over 300 people meeting when, uh, in 1996, we'd got up to where we're averaging, I think, about 325 people per meeting. We had one meeting that was 800 people, and we were meeting twice a month, and we had another alternative meeting for the other two Tuesdays of the month, and uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the reasons the meetings were successful, and I've told this story in the past, but it's because I knew when to clap my hands. I was up leading the meeting. I would introduce our next speaker. He'd get up there and start speaking, and I would pay attention. And when he hit one of the hot notes, all right, in his speech, I would be the one in the back room clapping my hands. And everybody else would sit there like bumps on a pickle until I finally clapped my hands enough where they'd join in. And when they did, they began, it was good for them. It created a sense of communion. They had, they were not alone, and they were excited about it, ultimately. It added energy, and it's one of the reasons the meetings did well. But the point to this is the average man is scared to death to stand up alone and start talking, complaining, um, praising, anything. Yeah, because it takes it's 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 almost astonishing you know, how that works both ways. Like you clapping got everybody else to clap. Well, somebody's saying, "Well, you're the only one." That's exactly shut right. People down. That's exactly right. And they're they they are con- it's almost astonishing. The home of the free, land of the brave. Oh, oh, oh I you Dream know I, I went after ten years after ten years of graduating high school. I had an opportunity in in Hawaii to go to college, so I did. Uh, I only went to one semester, and and I'm in an English class. They threw you out, didn't they, Frank? No, they didn't. I did, I did very well, but I didn't go back because really there was no use in it because it's uh, it was a disappointment for me because I expected more out of college. I yeah. really did, and. So I'm in English class, and at first I thought, oh, man, I'm never going to, because she's like, well, uh, all our papers have to be on computer. And I'm thinking, I've never worked a computer in my life. I have no idea. I'm never going to make it. I'm failing out of this thing Sheesh, before I even get started, you know. But it turns out it was pretty easy, and um, I'm sitting in English class, and the teacher's going on and saying, okay, here's how it's, you know, this is what, we're going to do here and this is what we're going to learn for this semester and she started talking and you know I'm kind of not paying attention because I was realizing gee uh, this sounds like a class I took in my sophomore year of high school so I'm kind of looking around the room and I'm listening but I'm looking around and boy there's some blank stares in this room and so she finally gets to the point where it's like, okay, does anybody have any questions? Nothing, man. I mean, I'm talking deer in the headlights from the whole class, mm-hmm. just staring at her. So I decided to ask some questions. And as I did, she, she answered them, and all, I noticed all these pencils going. All these kids are writing down what her answer is, right? Yeah. So I asked some more questions, and they're writing away. 
Well, what it showed me was these kids had questions. They were just afraid to ask any questions. Yeah. Nobody wanted to look stupid. And yeah, I, know. I thought I was in trouble because she said, uh, you know, I'd like to see you after class. Uh, oh, boy, here we go again. It's high school all over again. And uh, she actually said, hey, you want to be teacher's assistant? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I, you know, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to pass this class, right, because mm-hmm. of the computer thing. And she goes, no, you'll do fine, uh, but uh, you could, you know, help the others. And, uh, you know, that's all you got to do. And I'm like, okay, I can do that because, you know, this doesn't seem that difficult. And I was never really good in English class, but my point is that's how far down it went just in the 10 years between me going to high school and me going to, you know, a freshman in college. Now you're a professor. For 10 years earlier, you're a high school graduate. 10 years later, you're a college professor. Yeah. Not quite, but you, you see what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, it's not uh, necessarily a good thing. You know, I mean, it'd be nice to think I'm that smart, but I'm not. It's the other way. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of amazing. It's astonishing. Um, yeah, been dumbed down. It's true. I, I watched a woman I used to date years ago. She had a couple. Of, she had a couple of daughters, and I, you know, I knew that I knew the kids a little bit, and I knew one of the daughters, and I had a boyfriend, and they were at the top of their class in high school. And you watch him stare <laughs> at a TV set. And, I mean, it was just astonishing. I mean, they, were, they, they watched TV from maybe 18 inches away from the television set. Wow. And these were, you know, and she, be, she became a lawyer. <laughs> She's making more money than most of us can carry, let alone count. Um, traveled, she and her husband, same guy. She and her high school sweetheart married, and and they've traveled to virtually every. I know they've been on every continent. I don't know if they've been to every country, but I'm sure they're working on it. I mean, they take a vacation probably at least three times a year, and they fly over someplace and they blah 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 blah. blah. Very successful, but I can just. I mean, it was almost comical. They were doing. They were top of their class in school, and, uh, you know, it was just what they knew was trivial compared to what I'd picked up in high school back, you know, at the time, 30 years earlier or thereabouts. I don't remember, but no, and you not encouraging, but what, do you, what is the key to education? Being able to think, you know, I mean. Well, I get that, but here's the question. You know, it's a trick question, kind of. I can't expect anybody to answer it. I am beginning to suspect, and it's just recently going through my mind, that real education is self-education. When we go to schools, we get indoctrination, especially you get into high school and college and the rest of that. I mean, I understand that there's education there. There's, there's things to be learned and the rest of it. But there's a certain amount of conditioning that goes along with it where I'm beginning to think that the best education is self-education. Well, I, I, I certainly yourself. agree with that. I certainly agree with that. And it's disappointing because there is a phenomenal opportunity for people to become educated with the Internet right now. And, yeah, there's bad things about the Internet. But if you want to be educated, you have a phenomenal opportunity with the uh, – I mean, it's like having a library in your in your house. 
It's like the Library of Alexandria in your house. It's like the finest library the world's ever seen. And people, you know, the miracle of the Internet is something that, you know, let's, let's go tweet somebody. <laughs> yeah. You know, let's go it tweet. may be being squandered just a little bit. I understand. Yeah, I, then again, you know, the point the point about these kids, we can look at them and go, boy, are you dumb? You know, I learned a lot more. Well, in some of them are, some of them aren't. Than, than you're learning in college. But then again, I know you're aware of this because it's been floating around for a long time. That test from the eighth grade graduation from 18-something yep. yep. or another. Man, I think It was that. from right about 1900, and it was from Nebraska. And I remember publishing that test. It was an eighth grade examination. I didn't do Nebraska too well. Neither did I. I don't think I could have passed it. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that most college graduates <laughs> would be completely shut down by this thing. All right? And this was for eighth graders, 1900, right about 1900 in Nebraska. Yep. And it's just astonishing evidence of how much you can learn if you have somebody who's more interested in teaching you than they are in worrying about your self-esteem. And maybe you get your knuckles wrapped once in a while by the ruler if you're behaving, you know, if you're unruly or whatever. But education is possible. Children can be educated, but we certainly aren't doing it. And it's another one of those things that, how's that going to work out? Yeah. How, how, how will the, we hold this society together? And you know, we what, have you robots coming in to take the jobs now. I mean, the, it's going to be the Mexicans are going to leave because they can't be replaced by the robots. But, you know, you mentioned 1900 with that yeah. test and, you know, the uh, man and other animals around mm -hmm. 1900. 1906. It seems like a lot of things started to change around 1900, you know, the 19, early 1900s that they were, you know, so it's like somebody had a, somebody got into a place of authority where they were finally able to start making some changes. Well, what about, you know... When we talk about 1900 as a turning point, you can look back. It's not that far from the end of the Civil War. That's only 35 years after mm -hmm. the end of the Civil War. And it's a little over 30 years since the implementation, since the, the 14th Amendment was enacted. All right? Which brings me to the next subject we'll talk about here. We've got a case called Zivarov. Zavarsky uh, versus Kerry. Well, I'd help you, but I looked at that name and uh, I got nothing. Zivotovsky. I'm that's sure that's close. close. Here's I'm reading from the case, and if you've got that, if you see it in your in the paperwork I sent over to you. Yep, I got it right here. Do you happen to notice that it's volume number zero zero zero? I do now. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That means this is an important case. <clears throat> We've talked about one of these weeks we'll have to do volume 000 and whatever I've got on it. I'll see what I've dug up over the years on it. For what it's worth, this is according to findlaw.com. You know, most we have volumes. When we have a Supreme Court case, it'll be like 351 U.S. 712, meaning it's volume 351 and it starts on page 712. And the volumes, I don't know, they typically last for anything from six months to maybe a couple of years. 
I don't know what the what the time limit is on the volumes. But they move from 351 to 352 to 353 and so on. But we have, since the late 1990s, about 1997 was the first time I stumbled into this and, and, and began to realize there was something going on. We have a volume 000 that's reported at findlaw.com for the Supreme Court. And this single volume has persisted since about 1996 or 1997, and it continues to this day. And I see a lot of cases that are reported both in volume 000 and in the most recent volume of the Supreme Court decisions. And I have a strong suspicion that volume 000 is the difference. There's no difference. They'll, they'll report the case at two different case sites. One of them is 000, and the other one is, say, volume 351. All right? Same case. Word for word identical so far as I've been able to understand. And you will see, not always, but 70% of the time. If it's in 000, it's also in the most recent volume of the Supreme Court decisions. The only thing I can think of to explain the difference on these things is that volume 000 is the Supreme Court of the United States, which is the judicial court, in my opinion, while volume 351, 352, 353, and so on, 451, I don't know where they are right now. Those volumes, I think, are reported from United States Supreme Court, which I think is territorial and or administrative. And I think the only difference is one carries a certain level of authority and the other one is statutory authority. I think the 000 may be constitutional authority. It's hard to know, but I think I have no doubt that 000 is superior in power authority to the others. And uh but I still don't understand the difference for an absolute fact. We'll get into it one of these days, but here we have Zivotofsky versus Kerry. This is a case that was decided on the 8th of this month, just uh, yesterday. And Petitioner Zivotofsky was born to United States citizens living in Jerusalem. Okay? Pursuant to Section 214 of the Foreign Relations Authorization Act, his mother asked American embassy officials to list his place of birth as Israel on, among other things, his passport. Okay, we're talking about an infant. She said the, the child was actually born in Jerusalem, but she wants the, the, uh, the embassy, the local embassy, to list his place of birth as Israel, which the law says they must do because they didn't recognize Jerusalem as being subject to any Israel or uh, Palestine or whoever they did they didn't recognize any sovereign in charge of the state or the city of Israel and therefore they wouldn't they refused to report him as being born in Jerusalem they said they couldn't do it in one thing or another they got into a fight over this thing and one of the Supreme Court has resolved that issue and here's what interests me about this Petitioner Zivotofsky, a baby, was born to United States citizens. His mom and dad were United States citizens, but they were living in Jerusalem. 
And it says uh, the mother asked the embassy officials to place list his birth as Israel on his passport. And the secretary in, the, in Section 214 of the Foreign Relations Authorization says the secretary shall, upon request of the citizen or the citizen's legal guardian, to record the place of birth as, as Israel. All right? What makes this boy, what makes this infant, a U.S. citizen. Under the 14th Amendment, where a lot of us get incensed about the 14th Amendment and we ascribe a great deal of force, power, and adverse consequence to the 14th Amendment, it says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Now, in this particular case, it says... The secretary shall, upon request of the citizen or the citizen's legal guardian, record the place of birth as Israel. This is reading from the law that, uh, that they were complaining about. How was this infant a citizen of the United States? Well, I think Congress probably uh, did their naturalization thing, and I think they've got something called a citizen at birth. It's well, very interesting because, you know, I I started looking into this over John McCain. And then, of course, Barack Obama came along, and everybody got interested in what's a natural-born citizen. The, uh, the laws, the naturalization laws, have been changed uh, for a short period of time, maybe maybe six months. They actually use the word natural-born citizen in the naturalization laws, but then they changed it to citizen at birth. And everything I could find, the reason why is because they cannot statutorily define constitutional terminology. It is, you know, it, it, that's a separate thing. They can't... Yeah, know, I agree with that. You know, you can't say, well, we're deciding uh, by the statute what the Constitution says. So they took it out and they created something else because, see... A natural-born citizen is a constitutional status. Everything else is naturalization. Okay, but here's my point. This boy was born in Jerusalem. Right, by two U.S. citizens. I get that, but 14th Amendment says born or or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. What I'm trying to get, what I'm getting to here is it doesn't appear to me that he was a 14th Amendment citizen. And on top of all of that, how was, and and more importantly, the, the conclusion, the implication on this is that he was deemed a citizen simply because his parents were citizens right. of the United States. Well, if that were true, then do you really have problems with the government because you qualify as a citizen of the United States under the 14th Amendment? Or do you have problems with the government because your parents were deemed to be citizens of the United States when you were born? Do you see what I'm getting to here? Is the 14th Amendment really critical? Or is it just, we talk about it, we argue about it, but the real deal is who was your mom and dad? Well, yeah, and I think the uh, the naturalization laws pretty much that's pretty much where they go. And I don't remember where they are exactly in the U.S. Code, but, you know, it's, certainly, it's not the 14th Amendment, but 
you know, they're pretty detailed in who's who qualifies as what and uh, what you're going to be called and what your status actually is. And, you know, and there's been this, you know, debate whether a natural-born citizen is the same as a citizen at birth. And I'm convinced it's not, you know, but that's neither here nor there. Well, how do you distinguish between the two? Well, a a, a natural-born citizen is what the Constitution says, and a citizen at birth is a legislative act. Now, my my conclusion about the whole thing... Okay, all right, you're saying a natural-born citizen is a constitutional... Well, maybe that's what you're saying. You're saying that a natural-born citizen is a constitutional status, where citizen at birth is a statutory status. Right. And, you know, if... Because Congress only has the authority of naturalization, if your status is dependent on anything they've done, you're a naturalized citizen. You have to be. You can't be anything else because they don't have any other authority. See, Congress can't make you a natural-born citizen. You either are or you're not. But they and can how have... do you think you get to be a natural-born citizen? Well, and that's the that's the big you know the the big debate. I think it's a lot simpler than it's made out to be because I think it's it's simple. You're naturally born here in the in the one of the states of the union. I agree with you. I agree that would be the deal on this. If this is a constitutional status. It has. To, it almost certainly follows. You've got to be born in one of the states of the union to be a natural-born citizen. But if it turns out that you were a what was the other term? Citizen at birth. Citizen at birth. Yep. That implies that you are not born within the United States of America, but you might be in the United, born in the United States or in United States territory. Well, yeah, you're a natural. That's the way I, that'd be superficial for me. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, and you're a naturalized citizen because if your status is dependent on an act of Congress, you can't be anything but that because they don't have any other authority than naturalization. Yeah. You know, they couldn't do anything else if they well, unless they break the law, which they'd never do that. But unless they got paid for it. Well, yeah, but they, you know, they have the authority, wide-ranging authority for naturalization. So they can write any laws they want. Go well, hey, you know, if your grandma was uh, uh, a citizen and your grandpa was a citizen, or whatever, whatever we say, you can be a citizen at birth or a naturalized citizen or whatever else we say, other than a natural-born citizen. You know. But if you produce a government-issued birth certificate. Where does that birth certificate indicate you were born? Does the birth certificate indicate government issued? Does it indicate natural born or I keep think I keep forgetting the second term. Citizen at birth. I, I Citizen think it, at birth. I think it does that. I think it's uh you know, some sort of corporate status, commercial paper generated who knows what. And you're saying that you think that the common, the ordinary Government-issued birth certificate is evidence that you're a citizen's birth. Well, do you think that or not? See, I don't. You see, that's that's really the question because just because you know, okay, I'm a baby, and the state issues me something. Well, I didn't have any. uh, I didn't volunteer for that. I didn't ask for that. You know, when I get older, I might not want to be that. 
So I don't think it's you know I don't think it's a cut and dry deal. I think they start off giving you the you know uh, I think they start off saying, well, hey, we're going to issue this, and uh, you know later on in life if you accept it and uh, you agree, yeah. you know, to be that, then you are that. Yeah, I agree with you. If if you use that birth certificate, um, it creates the presumption. It supports the presumption that okay, you are, uh, yeah, you know, citizen of the United States, and uh, you therefore are now our subject. You know, I, I can tell you time, what we want you to do. The first time I tried to go open a you know a little uh, checkbook savings account as a kid, yep. yep. You know, I went down there with my birth. The only birth certificate I knew of was the one with the little footprints on it there from the hospital. And I took it yep. down there, and they said, no dice. You can't, That's uh, right. you know, we're not going to open up. Uh, you got to get the state of, you know, wherever you were born uh, to issue that. And I had to go home, and my parents had to send away for it because I didn't even have one. And they have to send away for it, and then I could go open a, a, a bank account. So, you know, there is a significance to it. I mean, no, Obviously, those were my footprints, and it could be proven that this was me. And, gosh, it's got more information on it than the state-issued thing. You know, it tells you the time, the witness. Oh, it really makes for a better identification insofar as your little footprints, at least they're a little bit like fingerprints. I don't know that they would stand up years later, but they give, you know, you can pretty much identify that child. Uh, You can track it in a way that isn't necessarily true. But they With wouldn't. The state issue. They wouldn't. Uh, they would not accept it. It was like no, I understand no. that, and I wonder what would happen if you posted your identity based on the hospital issued birth certificate. If you were able to say this is who I am, can they bring you into court? Hmm. Can they give you a traffic ticket? I don't know. You know, that's a good question. I think it would yeah, be a good. Uh, would if you can't get a bank account, I wonder if you can get a traffic ticket. Goes, but I want a traffic ticket. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You you got to get a regular state issued birth certificate before we're going to give you a traffic ticket. Oh no! No commercial paper for you. Yeah. Let's move. We got 20 minutes left. Let's talk a little bit about. Uh, you've probably seen the the pool party down here in Dallas or near Dallas. At we had some black kids at a pool party. Police were called by residents. Uh, one thing led to another, and you saw a picture that I imagine you've seen the pictures of the police officer throwing the one kid to the ground. Well, no, I actually didn't see any pictures. But I, this is—is is this the story where some people are saying, you know, the cop deserves a medal for pulling a gun on these kids, or? I, you know, there's, uh, if you haven't seen the video, you really need to see the video. Um, I was just curious about what you thought about this, if you, if you were aware of it, and if, it, you know, if it, if it was meaningful to, to you. The but point, to the point I read about it, yeah, but I didn't see any, I didn't, I didn't notice any video on it. I just uh, read this story. No, there's a bunch of videos now, and some of them have had five million. There were one million people looked at one of the videos. I mean, the kids had their own cell phones, and they're, they're. <laughs> You know, taping this whole thing, and uh, uh, it starts out apparently with, first off, some reports, if I understand correctly, there may have been over 100 black kids at this pool for some sort of a birthday party or something. Some of them were invited. Some of them weren't invited. 
Uh, it's not clear to me that these kids had they had legitimate access to this pool. And some of the white residents came up and complained, and they said, hey, you kids don't have, uh, you, this isn't where you belong. And some of the black kids said, buzz off, honky, if you know what's good for you, or words to that effect. And so the honkies went over, and they called the cops, and the cops came out there. And the cops see a hundred black teenagers or dozens anyway. And of course, and, and one of the things that almost certainly happens is the cops are afraid of these kids. I don't doubt for a minute that the cops are afraid of large numbers of Negroes because they understand they can get themselves in some serious trouble if they don't watch their step, if they lose control of circumstances. And I know that the blacks, they're afraid of the cops, and the cops are afraid of the blacks, and the combination is its incendiary. It's one of those things where, and we've got one cop here. Well, add, add alcohol and cops. some guns, and we'll really have a good time with that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. we've got the cop that pulled the gun is a former police officer of the year for the uh, whatever community it was, that this, took, this was local. Um, community near Dallas. He'd, he'd been police officer of the year in the last couple of years. He was a corporal, if I recall correctly. And you can see in the video, this guy is playing John Wayne. And he's going after these kids and knocking them on the ground and telling them to stay put and don't do this and don't do that. And this cop really is out of control. All right. Uh, throw some girl to the ground. The cop is wrong on this thing. He's out of control. It, but this starts, but the kids are in a place where they're not supposed to be, if I understand correctly. They didn't have permission to be here. Some sort of a private pool, uh, private community pool. I'm not sure exactly how it all worked out. And then you've got half a dozen black kids who are smarting off to the local honkies, and that gets them the honkies called the cops. And the cops come out, and uh, they think they've got a riot on their hands, and they're afraid they're going to get shot, you know. Uh, and it just goes out of control, and it becomes stupid. And I think the lesson in here is nobody's, no one is the good guy. We have some kids in places where they don't belong. We have some other kids that are smart enough, and as soon as they send F you to the local residents, they're behaving like a pack of niggers, all right? And then this thing just goes out of control. And now what's going to happen? Some people say the cops should be getting a medal. He pulled a gun, and in retrospect, it was just stupid. He's pulling a gun on some high school kids that are just at a birthday party. But I don't think he saw that. I think what he saw was 100 kids, 100 black kids. And I think it just puts him into a state of fear, and he overreacted, and one thing led to another, and now where are we? Well, and I was, is, you know, this is what I've I've been saying for a long time now is that the police are really poorly trained, uh, and it's and it's obvious so many times when they do stuff like this, because you know, okay, fine, I have a gun. You know, I don't care, you know, so there's a bunch of you kids here. Uh, we all, you know, I'm not here by myself, and I, we all have guns. Now, d 
disperse or we're arresting all of you, you know, and there's a, you know, there's a, a level, an escalation of force, I think they call it, yeah. that they're supposed to be trained. You know, you just don't start pulling your gun and shooting people. What, the no, you've got to do a little dance before you can shoot them. That's right. Uh, you've you got to do, you know, put your right foot in, you put your right foot out. You've got to do the bunny hop a little bit, a couple of bars of the bunny hop, and then you can shoot them. Yeah, Can't well. just shoot them right up there. Right, right. You know, and they're supposed to be trained this, and there it doesn't seem like they're trained this anywhere. And now, what's the th- you know, untrained people panic, and panic people do stupid things. And I, I, I don't think this cop was untrained. Again, he was policeman of the year, and he was a corporal. Mm-hmm. I think if anything, he was just a little too tightly wound, and he was too interested in playing John Wayne or whatever. And uh, he just got out of control on this. This was just foolishness. It was stupid. But it's a situation where the kids are wrong. They're in the wrong place. Apparently, they didn't have permission to be there. The cop is uh, throwing people around and bouncing some girl on the ground. And I don't know. The whole thing is... I'm giving the guy the benefit of the doubt, saying maybe he's not trained, and you're you're saying he's... No, I think he was trained. Well, I think he... You know, it's sort of thing where you have bad days. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just part of life where you have bad days where you're just in the mood, all right, where if something goes just a little bit wrong, one more time, I'm going to pull out my gun and shoot somebody. Now, now, it now, happens anybody, to people, and I think that's what happened to this cop this day. Was anybody seriously injured? At, no, at, not to my knowledge. No. Well, Nobody's been seriously that. injured, but, of course, now it's going to have to be demonstrations and the rest of this crap. Oh, geez, you know, and yeah. it'll be a situation. I don't doubt that this cop is wrong. He overreacted, in my opinion. I've seen a number of the videos on this thing. But the kids were also wrong. Right. And we've got a situation now where black kids think they are, but they're entitled to be wrong. Mm-hmm. They're marching around saying, oh, we've been discriminated against. We've been discriminated against. We're entitled to act like a bunch of damn fools. Well, and I think, I honestly think that the police have become not just with groups of black kids, maybe more so, but I think they're afraid of everybody. Well, that's probably true. You know, they seem to be on edge all the time. I agree with that. Anytime they have to deal with anybody. Yeah. You know, you know what part of the reason is for that, in my opinion? Mm-mm. They stress to the police officers, first thing you want to do is make sure you come home tonight. Mm-hmm. Most important thing is you got to get through the day and go home for dinner. And really, it's not the most important thing. When you get into the mindset and they're trained to believe the most important thing is your life, you're no longer acting as a servant. You are necessarily saying, if my life is the most important than the rest of them, I can gun them down. And the cops are inclu- are encouraged to think that way. Mm-hmm. And I can understand from a survival perspective and a bunch of other perspectives, you know, on one level you can't blame them. But the truth of the matter is if you're going to have a police department that people really respect, you've got to have people who are prepared to put their life on the line. Well, and, and a lot and of the cops are not. They're willing to put their soul on the line by killing innocent people. I don't mean, and I'm not saying that about all cops. But I'm saying that that's what it comes down to in a lot of instances. Well, a lot of this is a misconception anyway that being a police officer, and, and granted there are more dangerous places than other, but on a whole, 
they don't even rank in the top ten most dangerous jobs in America. Yeah. You, know, you want to get really put your life on the line, go become a commercial fisherman. You know, yeah, be a miner. Yeah, that too. Uh, Work on ground. You know, so, you know, there's this misconception that, it, oh, gosh, it's so dangerous. There's somebody trying to kill me all the time. And, gosh, when you get somebody in that kind of mindset, and it's really a militarization mindset. That you're at war out here. You're at war with yeah, it's us against them. All right? The relationship is adversarial with the public. And that's the way the police, in my opinion, are taught to react. They're taught to perceive us against them. Thin blue line. The public can't understand. And that's kind of poor, the poor training I'm talking about. I agree with I you. I think that's poor training I for agree a police force. I agree because when you start finding you're going to treat them as the enemy, shoot the enemy, guess what? Sooner or later, the enemy shoots back. Yeah, they're going to become the enemy if you keep treating yeah, them like the enemy. Yeah, that's exactly right. You want an enemy, you're going to make it an enemy. Yeah, and, and we'll see if you can deal with, you know, 100 enemies for every one cop yeah it's a bad deal and it's it's this militarization and it's more than just the you know the fancy toys and the nice trucks and all the other stuff they got it's the mindset it's really that's that's the most dangerous thing you know the same thing we're talking about earlier when i talk about systems of values and people who are put in positions where they're able to install something like evolution and install something like man or other animals in american law they're messing with values in a way that the average person doesn't grasp, appreciate, understand. But these people are masterful. And they're the same ones that are teaching the cops that it's us against them. Meaning the cops versus the public. And the inevitable consequence, as long as we have this us against them mentality, the cops are going to shoot some of the people. And inevitably, the people are going to start shooting back. And if you play us against them long enough, fine, guess what? You're going to have us against them. And people say, oh, my gosh, how did this happen? It happened because some very intelligent people are pulling strings and manipulating Congress and the Senate and the courts and the presidents and whoever is in charge of the police at the local, federal, state levels. Somebody's pulling those strings, and they are doing an extraordinary job, and no one, not many people seem to notice, and even fewer seem to care. You know, in in, in covert things, they, they do something called uh, uh, compartmentalization, you know, where yeah. they keep things separate, where nobody really gets the full picture of what's going on, mm-hmm. but everybody's got their little cubicle to work in and they do their part and it's kind of that way with what's happened with the police in america because i mean you have the prosecutors that depend on the police to investigate crime so they can keep up their 97 percent conviction rate and get reelected. then you've got the judges cutting them slack and oh well you know if you felt afraid well then it's okay you can do whatever yep. you want you know and off you go and Shoot all you want. It's just, it's no there's problem. no accountability, and it's it's not just the police chief saying, "Okay, boys, go out there and knock some heads down." It's it's the courts, it's the prosecutors, and it's the media, because you know when a cop, hey, well, and you know, it's the people. Yeah, it is. You know because everybody's got their well, you know those rotten black kids, or then you'll have the black community saying, "Oh, rotten cops," and everybody's yep. you know chooses sides and. Nobody really cares what really happened. <laughs> you, know, 
know? Yeah, what does it matter? Yeah, hey, I, yeah, you does know, it I, matter? Some cops shot some black guys, black kids, what does it matter? Some blacks shot some cops, what does it matter? Yeah. And again, this just goes to this moral situation where we have lost our capacity for moral outrage. And, no, and I don't know what we're going to do to regain it. We express our moral outrage, or at least blacks do, by demonstrating. Whites don't seem capable of moral outrage anymore. Blacks are at least capable of it, even when they're wrong. They're at least capable of of feigning yeah, how, moral outrage. How dare Whites you? don't even bother. I don't know. I'm not outraged. I don't know. What do I care? What's as long matter? as the security system works on my house, what do I care? And Hillary said, what does it matter anyway? So, you know. We we listen to her. I understand. I don't want to be sexist or anything, so I have to listen to her. Well, I saw something else. I, I had one article here that I didn't bring up, but how much time do we have left? We got a couple minutes left. Minutes. Some some young woman is a feminist, all right. <laughs> and there's a newspaper article where she says she's not anyone's property. She belongs only to her, and she'll do what she wants with her life. All right. And she's being applauded for this. And I'm prepared to applaud her. Just so long as she doesn't say, oh, I want to do whatever I want to do with my life, but I want you, sir, being a man, I want you to pay to support my my insurance premiums. I want you to provide me with a house and a car and a boat and the cash and the uh, child support and the rest of that sort of thing. You know, everybody wants to be completely free and independent. But nobody, very few people want to sit back and say, I not only want to be independent in relationship to other people or the other gender or whatever. I even want to be independent in terms of whatever I can get out of the government. I want to support myself. And I look at the feminism, you know, this feminist, and she's just a young girl. But she wants, I, I wonder if she realizes what she's asking for here. She wants to be just completely independent, free to do whatever she wants to do, and how, yada, yada. How Fine. old is she? Pay your own bills. I don't know. I had the impression 18, 20 years okay, old. Okay, then she doesn't know what she's saying. No. no. Nobody does at 18. What age do we finally know what we're talking about? And I'll, how many, more, you, years, you know, how many more years do I have to go? <laughs> I'll let you know, Al, when I get yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Frank, I, I think we one article here though. You you know the headline: the cheapest way to end homelessness. Oh yeah, is <laughs> to give every all the homeless people houses. Yep. Uh, you know it's it sounds crazy, but it, it could work. Yeah, except for one thing, and this is from Business Insider, and this is no joke. The cheapest way to end homelessness is ridiculously simple, according to the largest ever U.S. study. Uh, turns out the best way to combat homelessness is to provide homes. Well, that would seem obvious, but here's what's going to happen. Uh, half, to all, half of all county expenditures were being spent on just 5% of the homeless population who came into frequent contact with the police, hospitals, and other service agencies, racking up an average cost of $100,000 in costs per homeless person, and this 5% homeless person, annually. Wow. All right, so instead of costing them $100,000, why not buy them a house where they can, or an apartment or something where they can just hang out and not get into so much trouble? That was essentially um, the idea behind this, that it's cost-effective. But what about the illegal aliens? 
Once we start handing out homes to the homeless, how long before we're giving homes to the illegal aliens? Wait a minute. Didn't we already do that in the, crowd, in the housing crisis? Wasn't that I what wouldn't happened? Be surprised. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. But once you establish the policy, before long we're going to be providing homes for everybody in, in Mexico. Come on up. We'll give you a free home. You know, I read that we've, we've already allowed like a, uh, a quarter of the population of Mexico into the United States. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's a quarter. I don't know. And I, 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 well, I don't, I don't know I don't how many know. people there are in Mexico. Are you talking? Um, take a guess. Well, when they're estimating 100 40, million, 150 million would be a guess, something like that. Well, they were. Uh, yeah, it's estimate. not impossible. It's not impossible. Uh, and you're not just talking illegal aliens. You're no. talking about uh, all, all. It's possible. You know. Yeah. It's 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 possible. I mean, does anyone look over the horizon or even down the street? You know, it's like shooting a gun at a target, a paper target, ten foot away. Does anyone consider where the bullet's going to go after it goes through the target? Sometimes I wonder because because we seem almost incapable of sitting back and saying, "There's going to be consequences here." This is stupid. It might be that it seems like a good idea. It might even be that it seems cost-effective. But in the end, it's going to be stupid, stupid, stupid. Yeah, well, we got a lot of that going on, and there doesn't seem to be any end to it. Well, there's going to be an end to it. I mean, you can only be stupid for so long before, you know, maybe natural selection does kick in. And uh, they say, "Uh uh-oh, you are too dumb to survive, fella. No. We're out of time, Frank. Yeah, I think so. We've had enough for the program. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'm Alfred Haddock here with Frank Steffen on the American Independence Hour. We will be back next Tuesday. Hope you tune in then. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Frank, the producer. Good night. Good night. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? 
Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
right. Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 9th of June, 2015. It's Tuesday, and it's about six minutes after 8 p.m. That's all true where you're at. We are, in fact, live, 800-932-1980. You can call in, get on the show that way. You can also participate by going to the chat room. That's located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Pick a name, pick a password, and head on in there, and uh, off you go. You'll be in the chat room, and you can ask questions, you can make comments, or you can just chat with the other folks in there. Either way... You can also instant message me directly through Yahoo Instant Messenger. The screen name is AVRN Talk. All right, somebody in the chat room says I'm melting. Yes, me too. Although I got to say it's not as hot as it was yesterday, but it's uh it's pretty warm in here. It's pretty warm, but uh not like yesterday. My thermometer read 113 degrees yesterday. That is oppressive. Anyway, right now it's only, what, 92 in here. So, we can we can handle 92. 113 is a bit much. Okay, so let's see here. Here's a headline from The Hill. Bill would require trade deals to be publicly available before fast-track vote. Can you imagine that? Publicly available? Wow, the public gets to see it. Look, the corporations have already said why they don't want us to see it. Because they, uh, you know, they don't want us to know. Because if we did know, we'd be against it. This is what they've said. A bipartisan group of lawmakers is calling for a change to House rules to require the administration to make all trade deals publicly available for 60 days before they could be approved using fast-track authority. The resolution titled The Trade Review Accountability Needs Sunlight and Preview of Any Regulations and Exact Negotiated Components, oh boy, was introduced by Representative Marcy Captor. She is a Democrat from Ohio, which is the same state that John Boner apparently or supposedly represents. But I don't think John Boner represents any state. I think he represents uh, the corporations. And yes, somebody in the chat room said, wasn't that a campaign promise by Barry? Yes, I believe it was. That, uh, oh, you're going to be able to see all the bills before we, uh, you know, we're going to put them up on the Internet before we pass anything. Sure. In a statement, CAPTUR, that's K-A-P-T-U-R, if you want to look, Marcy up, criticized Fast Track, also known as Trade Promotion Authority, 
which would grant President Obama the power to send trade deals to Congress for an up or down vote. Congress would also not amend trade deals submitted under fast track. Okay. Today it has become more of a blank check for the executive and turned Congress into little more than a rubber stamp. This legislation calls for an end to this dangerous and irresponsible approach and replaces it with sunlight in the form of public access and accountability. Boy, how much longer do you think old Marcy's going to be a congressman? I think they're going to probably find her in bed with a goat or something here soon. I mean, uh, you know, they're going to have to get rid of her. You know, this is not this is not good for business. The House is expected to vote on fast track as early as Thursday, and opponents have argued that the administration is not providing enough transparency on the deals it's negotiating. What? Obama not being transparent? Well, how can that be? He's the most transparent president ever. He told us he was going to be. Members of Congress have only been allowed to review text of the emerging Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal in a classified setting. We can all agree that these trade agreements will have a significant economic impact, Representative Duncan Hunter added. Given that fact, before Congress takes a vote on TPA or any other trade measure, the American people deserve to see what these agreements contain. Why, that's outrageous! Don't you trust your president? Come on! Fifteen other lawmakers have co-sponsored the resolution, including, let's see, uh, Alan Grayson, Louise Slaughter, Tim Ryan, Paul Tonko, Mark Takai. So far, these are all Democrats. Richard Nolan, Brad Sherman, hey, 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 here's a Republican, Ted Yoho, Mo Brooks, David McKinley, all Republicans, Walter Jones, Chelly Pingree, that's a Democrat, Mark Polkin, Scott Perry, now there's a uh, Republican, and Steve Russell. They're going to need more than that to get anywhere with this. What do you think? You think they're going to be able to pass it by Thursday? Not with John Boner as, uh, you know, head gatekeeper of uh, the House of Representatives. Because, you know, Boner's going to try to get this through, because the Senate's already passed it, and Boner's going to try to get this through the, the House of Representatives before anybody gets a chance to read anything. I, you know, it's just, it's so disappointing to have Republicans. I mean, you know, Republicans used to be for small business, remember? Okay. No, really, Ma and Pa, you know, that's what the Republican Party used to be about. Well, let's, uh, you know, let's uh, help Ma and Pa get ahead until Reagan came along. And yes, that's right, Reagan. 
And everybody has this idea that Ronald Reagan deregulated. It was good for Ma and Pa. No, it wasn't good for Ma and Pa. Deregulation was code for the Patriot Act or the Freedom Act. Deregulation meant we're going to take all the protections away from Ma and Pa so the corporations can smash them like an egg. That's what Reagan did. Now, can I blame Reagan? Well, yeah, I can, but I mean, I think it's pretty clear to everybody out there, he was just an actor. He was there to give good rhetoric, and he gave a heck of a speech. I'll give him that. But he wasn't running anything. After they shot him, he was a good boy. You do what we tell you. George Bush is in charge, and that's the way it is. Why do you think he didn't really care about it? Ah, so what? I'm a one-term president. I was president for seven and a half years under Reagan. You know, and if the Democrats would be like, well, okay, they're standing up for... But they're not either. They're standing up for nothing but special interest groups. Now, okay, that might not be necessarily a corporation like Exxon or Monsanto or something like that, but they're just as bad. I mean, we have two parties working against the American people. I think that's pretty clear. It should be pretty clear anyway. All right, let's see here. Why are big restaurant chains opposing a law that would give needed regulatory relief to smaller operators? This is what I'm talking about, folks. These big corporations have the ability to deal with all these stupid regulations, and they, yeah, it's going to cut into their bottom line, but they don't care. Haven't you noticed that productivity or sales or none of that stuff really count as far as stocks go. And that's all that really matters is, did your stocks go up or did your stocks go down? Are the stockholders still getting their dividends? Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter if our stores are empty as long as we're able to pay the stockholders. Well, the smaller places don't have that. They got to make money or they go out of business. But, okay, we're speaking of a fix to the Food and Drug Administration's Byzantine rules, implementing the restaurant menu labeling provisions of Obamacare. This law requires restaurants to post the calorie content for all the dishes on the menus and large posted menu boards. So if you had any kind of decor in your restaurant, you could forget it because you're going to cover it all up with menu boards. It is estimated to cost the restaurant industry up to $1 billion a year. Yet, Legislation that would add common sense to the enforcement of the new law is being aggressively opposed on Capitol Hill by the National Restaurant Association. Hmm, wait a minute. So, 
the Restaurant Association is opposing a law that would be easier on restaurants. Let's read on. The stupidity of the law was recently highlighted by Patrick Doyle, CEO of Domino's, who documented that its strict application would require the pizza company to list calorie contents for up to 34 million types of pizzas with all the variations of sizes, toppings, and crusts. Domino's would have to post these signs in the stores, though about 90% of customers order online or over the phone and never step inside the store. They're never going to see these costly signs, but that's okay because we don't have to put them on the Internet, which is where they would be, you know, less costly, less of a hassle. People might actually read them. Well, current law exempts restaurants with fewer than 20 franchise stores. But Domino's and other non-traditional restaurants, such as tens of thousands of small franchise-owned chain grocery and convenience stores, have sought flexibility in complying with the regulation because it would impose an unreasonable burden on their costs. You know, I'm wondering, how exactly does the federal government march into a state and decide that, oh, we're going to start making regulations for all your restaurants? Aren't restaurants businesses with local business licenses? I mean, how many jurisdictions do you really need looking over your restaurant? Or grocery store, anything else? Oh, let's see here. The law they want would exempt companies whose main business is not offering restaurant food and would make pizza and other fast food uh, delivery firms list calorie contents online where customers are likeliest to place an order. You know, to me, that makes sense. And uh, other than if you're making a, you know, Obamacare website, you know, websites shouldn't cost you that much money. I mean... Couple hundred million bucks ought to get you a nice little pizza website, huh? Well, anyway, enter the National Restaurant Association. A food service trade group dominated by the super chains such as McDonald's and Wendy's. The NRA, not the NRA, NRA. It's the National Restaurant Association, okay, is trying to block the proposed law, H.R. 2017, because the regulatory relief, quote, would create an unfair advantage for, for the firms carved out. We urge you to treat establishments selling restaurant-type food equitably, the trade group tells Congress. Representatives of Dunkin' Donuts recently testified against the relief bill because it would help its rivals. They don't care about, you know, fair uh, when it comes to, hey, we're a big behemoth that can put mom and pa out of business at any time. Oh, no, that's okay. That's fair. But the restaurant trade group is arguing against itself. Its position is that the menu labeling rule comes at a time when consumers are demanding more information about the food they eat. The group also contends 76% of consumers want menu labeling. 
Yeah. Do you see how... Okay. Do you see how this group is now taking over the argument? It's really very clever, folks, and, and you need to pay attention to it. Because they do it all the time. They meaning the corporations or the government. Okay, so... Everybody out there who knows anything wants food labeled. They don't really care how many calories are in anything. They want to know, is this food or is this a genetically modified monstrosity? They want to know, hey, is this thing loaded up with pesticides or is it organic? That's what people want to know. Is this from genetically modified wheat? Is this from genetically modified corn? Is this from some genetically modified animal? That's what people want to know. That's been the argument. And they've argued against it. No, 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 no. And now they're taking it on and saying, people want labeling. But what kind of labeling? Menu labeling? How many calories are in a pizza? You know what, folks? I got news for you. If you've got to count calories when you're at the pizza trough, you don't need to be at the pizza trough. It goes along the whole things, you know, if you got to ask how much it costs, then you can't afford it. If you got to check out how many calories your pizza is going to have, you don't need to be eating pizza. But, don't you want, wouldn't you rather know, hey, is this thing food or is this a genetically modified monstrosity? But do you see how they are taking the argument away from the GMO labeling and watering it down to a, oh, let's put the calories on the label. Yeah, sure, at the pizza place. Or McDonald's. Like, I really care how many calories are in a GMO burger. Anyway, big firms are lobbying increasingly in favor of costly rules that give them a competitive advantage over disruptive rivals. Large corporations are often able to leverage the economies of scale to absorb regulatory costs, while upstart rivals can't do the same. We have seen this effect with the compliance costs of Dodd-Frank financial regulations that big banks are able to afford much more easily than community banks. This is leading to a consolidation in the banking industry as the whales swallow the minnows. It's called monopoly, baby. It's a sad day when companies such as Dunkin' Donuts actively are urge Congress to impose the most onerous and costly approach to a menu labeling law as a way to create a level playing field. This would be like the Bank of America lobbying not to exempt the local community bank from Dodd-Frank, which may well happen. Anyway, so that's what's going on, folks. But the main story, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that they have taken the argument of labeling GMOs and now turned it into an argument about labeling for calories. Calories at a pizza joint. Calories at McDonald's. Don't you know by now if you eat at a pizza place, if you eat at McDonald's, you're going to get fat? Hey, but you know what? Eat at McDonald's every day for a month. You won't have to worry about it because you'll be dead. There you go. See, there's always a solution.
<laughs> you know, I mean, okay. Well, here's something. This is the headline. Prepare for the worst. Armageddon. Well, they don't say Armageddon. They say Amerigeddon. Deeply disturbing revelation about America's future. Well, what a stretch. America will never be destroyed from outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. You know who said that? I'm not a fan. But hey, you know, when you're right, you're right. It was Abraham Lincoln. I believe Abraham Lincoln had it right. If the United States is ever going to be destroyed, it will be through acts from within, which is exactly what American citizens are witnessing in our country today. A complete and total destruction from inside this great nation. America is no longer the land of the free I once knew. It has become a nation of mass surveillance, incessant spying, and government regulations completely focused on targeting citizens, objecting to their authoritative authority rules and laws. History is repeating itself as the Jade Helm training exercises rise around us, and all those in opposition are labeled fearmongers. The disturbing and sickening revelation about America that you uh, ah, will be hearing in the video below, which you won't be hearing in the video below, uh, might give you more to consider than you bargained for. And while these words may not be what you want to hear, they are words that desperately need to be heard. Now, here's uh, some of the stuff. Uh, that you would have heard in, in there. The U.S. Army considers Christians and Tea Party an extremist threat. A list of 72 types of law-abiding Americans that are considered to be extremists and potential terrorists in official U.S. government documents. Now, pay attention, folks. Law-abiding Americans. 72 types of law-abiding citizens. That means... You're not breaking any laws. They just don't like the way you think. A U.S. Army scenario was developed to crush a Tea Party enemy. You know, I didn't even realize the Tea Party was actually a party. Now, are they an army or what? Something going on here that nobody told me or what? Anyway, federal agencies and state agencies are targeting conservatives as enemies of the state. The federal government is engaging in over-criminalization, mm, except for themselves. Federal agencies are militarizing. We all heard about the FDA and all these little, you know, regulatory agencies getting automatic, you know, firearms. Numerous government documents, when taken as a whole, show a militarization against the patriotic U.S. civilian population. I don't think that's too hard of a stretch for people to see that. The police forces have been militarized in the United States. President Obama is purging military leadership at an unprecedented rate of those who dissent from his policies and who might resist this militarization. And folks, that has been pretty quiet. I mean, it's been, it's been going on, but you've got to go look for it in order to find it, because you're not going to get Fox News and CNN to do a headline about the military purge of the Pentagon. No, no, 
You're going to have to go look for that. Army press conference video on Jade Helm 15 annual realistic military training exercise. Quote, to train our soldiers for the next fight that they could encounter. Which will be unconventional warfare. Against who? Well, I don't know. Who are they training against? Where are they training? Hmm. They're training in the United States to infiltrate among the population. The 7th State Jade Helm 15 exercise is augmented by similar military training exercises in Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Dallas. The president may employ the armed forces against domestic violence. Well, you know, the Constitution says insurrection, not domestic violence, okay? Insurrection is a little bit more than domestic violence. The president may suspend habeas corpus by a presidential proclamation to allow an agency to hold a person without giving the person access to a court. (laughs) Is that news? I mean, come on. Hasn't that been since uh, 2001? The National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012, Section 1021, allows the President to use the U.S. Armed Forces to detain U.S. citizens and transferred detained citizens for trial by tribunal. The U.S. Army Civilian Internment and Resettlement Operations Field Manual describes internment slash resettlement camps holding 8,000 civilians each, U.S. military prisoners' confinement and interrogation restraint, indoctrination, use of deadly force, and execution of military and civilian detainees during domestic national emergencies. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers awarded a contract to KBR to build detention camps holding 5,000 people each. After an emergency is declared, much like FDR's Japanese internment camps, which Justice Antonia Scalia said could happen again today. Hmm. A military tribunal can deny liberty to American civilians captured by the U.S. Armed Forces and may transfer civilians into the U.S. Army's Civilian Inmate Labor Program. Boy, that's got a catchy name, doesn't it? U.S. Army Civilian Inmate Labor Program. Wow! Each state's National Guard may be federalized as federal U.S. military forces during a domestic national emergency. The U.S. Army's Military Police Training Manual, titled Civilian Disturbance Operations, describes how military police would be ordered to confiscate firearms and kill American dissidents during domestic civil unrest. Boy, they better have a lot of those guys, huh? Last time I heard, there's like a hundred million gun owners. Hmm. Congressional oversight has devolved into a series of show hearings after which nothing happens. The Reichstag fire decree shows how easy it is to overthrow a republic making a review of the classified Rex 84 plan important Mein Kampf, a reprint of Hitler's diatribe, in itself, a demonstration that the best place to hide is in full sight. How else could we have hidden his self-revealing program of blood and terror? Well, there you have it. You excited yet? <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, I, okay. I, I can see 
it's time for a break. Now, if I could just see where my music is, then we'd have a break. Huh. Can you imagine I misplaced my music? All right, well, we'll just uh, we'll go with this, and then we'll find something for the second song, and we'll be back in just a bit. Yeah. 
that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
right, welcome back. I know, I know. Some of you out there banging your heads going, oh my gosh, what is that noise? Well, The Room got both of the songs. Uh, let's see, the first one was Steve Earle, Copperhead Road. Kind of a country thing. And then, of course, we had Hangar 18 with Megadeth. And uh, they are not a country band, okay? And, the, as I said, The Room got both of them. But tomorrow, The Room goes down! Down to the ground, downtown. Anyway, that's uh, Stump the Room. And that's how we play. You, I play a song. You, uh, you know, I, I usually say you guess the band. But actually, you can guess the band. But mostly, you either know it or you don't. Anyhow, it is still the 9th of June, Tuesday, 2015. It's about 8.48 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. Anyway, 800-932-1980, if you want to call in, you can. You can go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You can also instant message me on Yahoo Instant Messenger. AVRN Talk is the screen name. So there you have it. There it all is. Okay, I'm I'm being asked for an update on Pastor Pastor Dan's wife. Now, uh, those of you out there who were listening yesterday, you might have heard me say that uh, Pastor Dan's wife had a uh, a, a medical problem. Now, I, you know, at first I was told it was an aneurysm, and it may have been, but uh, he, at this point. The updates are that um, she's doing well, and uh, the MRI doesn't really show anything. So, I don't know, but good news is good news. And uh, from what I understand, uh, she has another appointment uh, later this week, and they'll see what they can see. But as it is right now, she seems to be doing well. At least that's what I'm told, and uh, I'm sure all your prayers helped with that, and uh, are greatly appreciated by Dan and his whole family. So, anyway, just a little update on that. All right, let's get to stuff and things, things and stuff. Oh, oh, I did that one already, and uh, here's something. Now, I know a lot of you listening probably aren't in the bond market, right? But the bond market does control a lot of things. And it's definitely a big deal out there because if it crashes and burns, well, it's going to take a lot of other markets with it. Now, remember, 10 years ago, Alan Greenspan actually said that when this bubble pops, because it's a big bubble, traditional diversification will not protect you. You know what that means? Paper markets, stocks, bonds, currency markets, okay, they're all traditional diversification. Well, if the stock market ain't doing it, I'll get in the bond market. If the bond market ain't doing it, I'll get in the currency market. Well, I got another little warning for you. Um, now, I realize there's, under certain circumstances, I suppose, 
But I personally, I'm not an expert, and I'm no fan of paper metals. Huh? Paper metals? Yeah. You know, where some shyster says, hey, want to buy some gold? Yeah? Good. Give me your money. Hey, here's your little slip of paper. Says, uh, I've got this gold. I'm holding it for you in my safe place for you that you can never put your hands on. Yeah, except you see, I've only got one ounce of gold and I've just sold a hundred ounces of gold on paper. Yeah, see how that could work out real bad? Yeah, that's why I'm not a fan, folks. Now, look, if you can trust somebody, and I realize, look, if you've got an IRA or something like that, you might, you know, you might decide, well, I'd rather I'd rather be in paper gold than just paper paper. Right? Because you may actually be able to take physical delivery at some point somewhere sometime maybe. You know, and a lot of people are in IRAs, and that's just the way it is, and that's about the best you can do, you know, with, uh, you know, the do gold. But if you're not, and you are, you know, independently trying to preserve your wealth, uh, I would take physical delivery. Really. Because in the finan- is the financial collapse that so many are expecting in the second half of 2015... Already starting? Well, many have believed that we would see bonds crash before the stock market crashes, and that is precisely what is happening right now. Since mid-April, the yield on 10-year German bonds has shot up from 0.05% to 0.89%. But much of that jump has come this week. Just a couple of days ago, the yield on 10-year bonds was sitting at just 0.54. Now, I've read some of this to you before, but it's important for you to, to, to be reminded. Because what they said here is, this is happening right now. <laughs> yeah. and And, you know... Hey, people watch the stock market and, uh, you know, they're not generally in bonds. So you might not notice right away. So let's skip down here and say... (sighs) A recent surge in government bond market volatility can be blamed on the quantitative easing program of the European Central Bank according to one of Europe's top financial regulators. EIOPA, the body responsible for regulating insurers and pension funds in the European Union, has warned that ECB's decision to buy billions of euros worth of sovereign bonds to kickstart the region's economy has caused markets to become choppier. And actually... That is what should be happening. When central banks start creating money out of thin air and pumping it into the markets, investors should rationally demand a higher return on their money. This didn't really happen when the Federal Reserve tried quantitative easing, so the Europeans thought that they might as well try to get away with it too. Unfortunately for them, investors are starting to catch up with the scam. So what happens next? Well... 
European bond yields are probably going to keep heading higher over the coming weeks and months. This will especially be true if the Greek crisis continues to escalate. And unfortunately for Europe, that appears to be exactly what's happening. Oop! Greece will not make a June 5th repayment to the International Monetary Fund. I guess that's already come and gone. Let's see. Uh, I want to skip down here to the derivatives. Because that's really what's... You see, Greece... Uh, yeah, Greece, Greece is an indicator, as far as I'm concerned. You know, because they're really not that big of a market. And yeah, they're a problem. But, you know, eh, okay. It's more of a, well, we can't really let them go. Because if we let them go, Spain and Italy will think they can go too. And they're much bigger markets. And that could cause a problem. So, Greece in itself doesn't seem to be that huge of a deal. But... It's it. They got to deal with it because it could be that little domino that starts knocking over everything else. So let's see here. If Greece defaults and starts using another currency, the value of the euro is going to do is going to absolutely plummet, and bond yields oh, all over the continent are going to start heading into the stratosphere. That's why it's so important to keep an eye on what's going on in Greece. But no matter what happens in Greece, this is the derivative part, it appears that we are moving into a time when there will be higher interest rates around the world. Except that will kill the world economy, but hey. And since $505 trillion in derivatives are directly tied to the interest rate levels, that could lead to a financial unraveling unlike anything we have ever seen in the history of our planet. Wow. You know, because a lot of people have said, oh, this could be just as bad as 1929. But this guy's saying, oh, no, this is going to be the worst thing ever. As I have warned so many times before, 2008 was just the warm-up act. The main event is still coming, and it's going to be extraordinarily painful. Okay. You know, that ought to encourage you to maybe, uh, you know, get in something tangible. Now, as far as, you know, currency or, you know, things to trade and stuff, you know, I would say gold and silver myself. But then again, you know, as well as I do, there's lots of things out there that are tangible. Shovels are tangible. You know, if you think that, hey, I can always use a shovel and uh, people are always going to need shovels, so I'll always be able to trade my shovels for something that I need other than shovels. Then fine, get into the shovel business. But, you know, there's there's plenty of tangible things, things that you can use. Think that way. Think of water. Okay? Think of something to collect water in. Also, not just something to collect water in, but something to filter water with. Because I'll tell you, and I've seen this firsthand, uh, you know, going without water is probably the worst thing. Because, you know, dehydrating to death seems like a very ugly way to go. But drinking dirty water that gives you dysentery is pretty ugly, too. And, you know, you'd be good to avoid that if, if at all possible. And it is possible. You can get yourself 
filters, distillers, you know, reverse osmosis things, you know, and you really should. Yeah, you might say, well, it's kind of spendy, you know. I know you can get a reverse osmosis for like uh, 150 bucks, you know, and uh, I think it's well worth it, really, because, man, you do not want to get dysentery. You really, really don't. Well, anyways, I, you know what? I, somebody was telling me today that really, you know, the way things are looking, the only, the only thing you can actually tell people is, look, try to start preparing because bad things are coming. You know, difficult times are on the horizon. Now, who knows how long they'll last or how bad they'll really be, uh, but there's uh, some difficult times coming. And really, the only thing you can do is try to prepare yourself for it because, you know, there's not going to really be, I can't imagine, the white horse, you know, with the white hat coming riding in to save anybody. I don't see that happening. So, you got to take a little responsibility and try to prepare yourself and your family. And always leave yourself a way to defend yourself. Anyhow, I'll see you tomorrow. As always, thanks for listening. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? 
Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. would last forever. They called it the New Era. Was that Optimism in the air that you cannot even describe today. And everybody seemed to uh, have uh, uh, an interest in the stock market. Certainly, the uh, boot black, uh, the tailor, the grocer uh, own shares of one kind or another. This was the first time that many ordinary Americans had begun to invest in stocks. A stock, a share of a company, is bought and sold here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. The stocks themselves have no fixed value. As in an auction, if the stock is in demand, its price goes up. No demand, and the price goes down. 
For almost eight straight years, stock values had been rising. By 1929, there seemed to be no upper limits in this world of paper, numbers, and dreams. It was an arena of unbounded opportunity where somebody like my grandfather could come into it and make a fortune. So many people made so much money in the, the market that late in the 20s, it, it seemed that uh, you just couldn't go wrong buying stocks in American companies. Here was a whole new way to make a fortune. Unlike the Carnegies and the Rockefellers of previous decades who built steel mills and dug oil wells, men like Michael Meehan, Jesse Livermore, and Charles Mitchell had amassed their fortunes buying and selling stocks, pieces of paper. The public was fascinated. Bankers, brokers, and speculators had become celebrities, and they lived like royalty. I can hardly believe that a family lived in this kind of a house. I mean, today it would be almost unbelievable. Six stories and these great big rooms. Enormous. <laughs> we counted it up the other day. We had uh, 16 live-in help in this house. Not counting the chauffeurs, nothing. Not counting the chauffeurs, yeah. Uh, aside from all the help we had in the Tuxedo Park house and the Southampton house as well. But those days are gone forever. But we never thought of it as being grandiose because practically everybody we knew seemed to live in the same way. Jesse Livermore had a ticker tape in every home that he owned. They had a beautiful house on 76th Street in Manhattan on the west side off Central Park. They had a floor at 813 Fifth Avenue because Dorothea did not like to go to the west side to change her clothes. So they had a house in Great Neck. They had a summer house in Lake Placid. They had a house in Palm Beach. They had private railroad car, uh, two yachts, Oh, they lived. They really lived. Few Americans lived like Jesse Livermore, but there was a rising expectation that everyone could have a piece of this prosperity. During his presidential campaign of 1928, candidate Herbert Hoover would make this extraordinary promise. Give her a chance to go forward with the policies of the last eight years. We shall soon, with the help of God, be in sight of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation. There was great hope. America came out of World War I with the economy intact. We were the only strong country in the world. The dollar was king. We had a very popular president in the middle of the decade, Calvin Coolidge, and an even more popular one elected in 1928, Herbert Hoover. So uh, things looked pretty good. consumer revolution. New inventions, mass marketing, factories turning out amazing products like radios, rayon, air conditioners, underarm deodorant. 
This is a period in which the American household gets the washing machine, gets the refrigerator, goes off gas light and gets electricity in some cities. This is a period in which people would buy little plugs to put into the uh, outlets in the wall so the electricity wouldn't leak on the floor. What will they think of next was a 1920 saying. This new things continually coming out. And there were new things which you could enjoy, not just for the few. One of the most wondrous inventions of the age was consumer credit. Before 1920, the average worker couldn't borrow money. By 1929, buy now, pay later had become a way of life. So uh, there were changes, many changes in the way people viewed the world, and all of them optimistic. You extrapolate the curve, and what do you have? Permanent prosperity. That was a term one heard in the late 1920s. We entered an age of permanent prosperity. Wall Street got the credit for this prosperity, and Wall Street was dominated by just a small group of wealthy men. Rarely in the history of this nation had so much raw power been concentrated in the hands of a few businessmen. Men like William C. Durant. It's almost impossible to realize the power and the significance of the man. Uh, in Flint, when Mr. Durant came to Flint occasionally, people used to say, Durant is in town. Just like that, Durant is in town. He was uh, bigger than life. Earlier in the century, Durant had founded General Motors. Now, he made his money on Wall Street. Backed by Midwestern auto industrialists, he controlled so much money that he could single-handedly drive up the price of a stock and then sell, reaping huge profits. He was just at the apotheosis, at the maximum of his power. He managed, according to the voices of the time, according to what was said, anywhere between two to five billion dollars, which in those days was fabulous. The market was filled with bulls, and he was the bull of the bulls. Durant came to Wall Street as one of the titans of industry. Jesse Livermore, whose fortune was estimated at over $100 million, never did anything in his life but play the market. Everything Jesse Livermore touched turned to gold, it seemed. All he had to do was to press a button and the stock would go up 10 points. And uh, that meant, of course, that Jesse Livermore would make a lot of money. So uh, the average American would look at this and say, gee, I, if, I, if only I knew what he was doing, I could make money too. How do you get in on Jesse Livermore's brains? Livermore was a speculator, pure and simple. He didn't study the health of a company. He didn't care whether it made a profit or paid a dividend. For him, the stock market was an abstract game of numbers. Money was not the end for this man at all. Money was a very peripheral thing for him. But beating the odds, winning the game, that was, that was his objective. He was a numbers man. He lived by the numbers. He took an elevator by the numbers. He came into town by the numbers. Everything was done by numbers. When he left his house in the morning, he did not leave at 8.10. He left at 8.07. All of the policemen knew, because of his time schedule, that he would be going down Fifth Avenue, let's say, at 8.37. Well, of course, traffic lights were hand-operated then. We had policemen on boxes. 
So the instant that they saw his car, the lights were green. He never stopped for a red light. The success of large speculators like Livermore and Durant lured smaller investors to Wall Street. But Charles Mitchell, president of National City Bank, virtually invented the idea of mass-marketing stocks and bonds to the general public. This was a totally new idea and a huge success. The bank, uh, prior to Father's being elected uh, uh, president in 1921, was geared mainly to doing business with large corporations. Father pointed the bank for the first time in the direction of uh, going after the little man. And the little man, it's every man. Well, Yedemann, all right. Uh, How old was he then? 38 years old. And uh, the National City Company had uh, four offices. I know within three years there were over 50 offices. And by 1929, it was the largest distributor of securities in the world. Even at the height of the speculative frenzy, only a small percentage of the American public actually invested in stocks. But the market had entered popular culture. Wall Street became Main Street. Everyone was talking stocks. Watching the ticker became a national sport. Popular magazines covered financial news. Dozens of bestsellers promised investors the inside track. Oh, what a feeling. You got me feeling bigger and better than ever. The characters in the popular comic strip Gasoline Alley were investing in a company called Rubber Keyhole. Stock tips came from everywhere. Some investors followed the advice of Evangeline Adams, an astrologer. She was able to calculate the uh, variations of the stock exchange so accurately that there was practically no difference to having them read it in a, in a ledger somewhere. Among her more interesting clients were Charles Chaplin, uh, Mary Pickford, and J. Pierpont Morgan. In February, Evangeline Adams looked at the stars and predicted a dramatic upswing in stock prices for the coming months. I'm looking up at the sky. I see the clouds rolling by. Hello, sunshine. Hello. I'll say you long over. The stock market, once considered a highly risky place to put your money, is now beginning to attract a whole new group of amateur speculators. Among the new players was one Julius Marks. Everyone knew him by his stage name. Groucho. But they were poor. And my father, it always affected my father. Because he was always kind of thrifty and uh, worried about his future and what would become of him when no one else wanted him as an actor anymore. So he was always saving money, turning off the lights and turning off the water around the house, even after he was in Hollywood and making a lot of money. Of all the Marx brothers, Groucho was the most financially conservative. In 1929, he took his life savings and put it in a sure thing, the stock market. He was always uh, phoning a broker and getting hot tips and wanting to know what the stocks were, how they were doing. And uh, if he wasn't on the phone, he would take me into Great Neck, which was a little village at the time. They did have a stock broker called Newman Brothers and Worms, and all these men who were investing in the market would all sit there in chairs like a little theater and watch the ticker tapes go by 
Groucho, along with record numbers of smaller investors, was borrowing money to buy stocks. It was called buying on margin. You only needed 10% down. Just $1,000 would get you $10,000 worth of stock. Suddenly you were in the same league with the big players. Or so it seemed. But the stock market was not a level playing field. In the 20s and 30s, one of the big features of the uh, stock market is the fact that it wasn't controlled. And that operators could do a lot of things that are not permitted today. One of the most common tactics was to manipulate the price of a particular stock. A stock like Radio Corporation of America. RCA was in the 20s what Xerox was in the 60s, what was a great growth stock. Uh, the stock went from, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but from something like 20 to 400, split many times, and made many people, including my grandfather, very wealthy. Uh, it was one of the stocks that was... Um, manipulated by a pool. Wealthy investors would pool their money in a secret agreement to buy a stock, inflate its price, and then sell it to an unsuspecting public. Most stocks in the 1920s were regularly manipulated by insiders, like RCA specialist Michael Meehan. In those days, that was legal, and um, it was quite common practice for a group of um, Wall Streeters to take a stock in hand, and um, they would acquire a position in the stock early on, and then um, they would see to it that there was good press on the stock, a lot of publicity. I would say that practically all the financial journals will undertake. This includes reports of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Herald Tribune, uh, you name it. So uh, if you were a um, uh, a pool operator, you'd call your friend at the Times and say, look, uh, Charlie, there's an envelope waiting for you here, and we think that uh, perhaps um, you should write something nice about RCA. And Charlie would write something nice about RCA. Publicity man called A. Newton Plummer had canceled checks from practically every major journalist in New York City. Then they would begin to what was called painting the tape, and they would make the stock look exciting. They would trade among themselves, and you'd see these big prints in RCA, and people will say, oh, it looks as though that stock is being accumulated. Now, if they are behind it, you want to join them. So uh, you, want, you buy stock also. And what's happening is the stock goes from 10 to 15 to 20, and now it's at 20, and you start buying. Other people start buying, 30, 40. The original group, the pool, they stop buying. They're selling you the stock. It's now 50, and they're out of it. And what happens, of course, is the stock collapses. On March 8, 1929, Michael Meehan began one of the most successful pools on Wall Street. From the 8th to the 17th, Meehan and the pool pushed up the value of RCA almost 50%. On March 18th, they sold and divided up their profits. In today's money, they had made $100 million for one week's work. The pools were a little like musical chairs. When the music stopped, um, somebody owned the stocks, and th those were the sufferers. If small investors suffered, they would soon be back for more. They knew the game was rigged, but maybe next time they could beat the system. 
critics. Among them, economist Roger Babson. He questioned the boom and was accused of lack of patriotism, of selling America short. Roger Babson warned of the speculation, said there's going to be a crash, and uh, the aftermath is going to be quite terrible. And people jumped on Babson from all around uh, for saying such a thing, so that uh, people who were uh, cautious about their personal reputation, who did not want to call down on themselves a lot of calumny, uh, kept quiet. Mobster Al Capone was not a cautious man. From his Chicago headquarters, he condemned the wild speculation on Wall Street. It's a racket. Those stock market guys are crooked. Capone invested his money in a $100 million bootleg liquor business. Business was good on Valentine's Day, 1929. He had just eliminated the competition. March 4th, Inauguration Day. Republican President Calvin Coolidge had run his administration on the belief that business was the basis of America's prosperity. Government should not interfere. Herbert Hoover had won a landslide victory promising to carry on the tradition. This was a time in our history when governments did not, as now, take responsibility for the economy. They presided over it. But uh, the level of, of economic activity and the level of economic growth and the stability of prices were not yet everyday concerns of the president. And uh, uh, what Coolidge did was to uh, say how wonderful times were, how happy everybody was going to be, and how prosperous everyone was going to be. And Hoover's responsibility was to continue that optimism. You, Herbert Hoover, do solemnly swear. Politicians came and went, but in the 20s, the businessman was king. New York City had a dapper, corrupt, and vastly popular mayor, Jimmy Walker. But behind the scenes were powerful financial leaders like Charles Mitchell. Jimmy Walker was high, wide, and fancy with the city finances. One day, Father called Mayor Walker up here, uh, and he had some other bankers with him, and Mayor Walker was sort of put on the grill in the upstairs library, uh, while these bankers read the riot act to him to try and get some fiscal responsibility uh, instilled into him. And I know that after the meeting, uh, someone took me into the library and pointed, pointed me out the chair that the mayor had been sitting in, and he'd been so nervous. Oh, those Louis Cator's uh, chairs with Louis all the little, Louis Cass chairs <laughs> with all the little um, tacks in there, yeah. brass tacks. And he pulled out almost all the brass tacks that were sitting on the floor <laughs> out of sheer nerves. The stock market, too, was getting a severe case of nerves. On Friday, March 22nd, all eyes were on that august government body in Washington, the Federal Reserve Board. The board distrusted the boom, 
They saw the speculation as reckless and dangerous because it was based more and more on the shaky foundation of borrowed money, margin. The board had the power to curb the borrowing, but the market was now dependent on borrowed money. Without margin, it would collapse. The board met day after day. Would they ask for regulation of the stock market? They issued no public statements. Their silence was terrifying. Get my broker, say get my broker. Got to do, got to do, got to do. On Monday, March 25th, investors began to sell. Blue chip stocks plunged. Tuesday, another wave of selling swept the market. As it fell, people holding stock on margin were hit hard. They put only 10% down, but the value of their stock dropped more than 10%, so their down payment was gone. To hold their stocks, they'd have to put up more money. On March 26, millions of investors suddenly found themselves in deep trouble. Your broker would call you and say, we need more money. You're wiped out. Unless you could give him more money, he would then sell the stock. Now, he would sell the stock, which would cause the stock to go down to 83, 85, 86. And now more margin calls are triggered. So one margin call triggers, another margin call triggers, another margin call, and it goes all the way down. With everyone trying to borrow money to cover the falling value of their stocks, there was a credit crunch. Interest rates soared. At 20%, few people could afford to borrow more money. The boom was about to collapse like a house of cards. Charlie Mitchell was horrified. His success, his entire career, his personal fortune had been based on a rising market. If nobody else was going to stop the crash, Charles Mitchell would. Father, at that point, stepped in and announced that the National City Bank would provide $25 million of credit, which was all very well and very necessary, but he added the fateful words, whatever the Federal Reserve Board thinks. And uh, Senator Carter Glass, who had been sort of the father of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, took that as a direct slap across the face. Uh, but whatever Senator Glass thought, immediately the credit crisis was uh, alleviated. In fact, within the next 24 hours, call money went from 20% to 8%, and that stopped the panic then in March. The next day, the market rallied. The Federal Reserve Board remained silent, tacitly accepting defeat. The hero of the day was Charlie Mitchell. He had single-handedly stopped the crash of 29. With the start of the baseball season, people quickly forgot the break in the market. New events filled the papers. There was a crisis in Nicaragua, where the nationalist hero, Augusto Sandino, was threatening American Marines. Tragedy in the British Mandate of Palestine, as Jews and Arabs clashed over control of holy sites in Jerusalem. And in Antarctica, Commander Byrd was at his base camp, Little America, waiting for a break in the weather. His elaborately planned flight over the South Pole was still on ice. The newsreels had come into their own. Now, in living sound, patrons could keep abreast of the important events of the day. The biggest news of the day is 
is not the naval agreement, not even prohibition, but the return of the natural waistline. Dorothy Livermore was a typical flapper. She has to embody the funny. She would do almost anything on an impulse. She had some priceless pieces of 18th century furniture. But the house had settled, and the floors were not level. But Mrs. Livermore didn't like to spend money that didn't show. So instead of having the hoist put underneath, she simply solved the problem by having the legs of the furniture cut off to fit the sloping floors so that the tops of all the furniture were level. But of course the legs were on different angles. And this was her typical solution. It, as long as the tops were level, everything was fine. Everything was not fine that spring with the American economy. It was showing ominous signs of trouble. Steel production was declining. The construction industry was sluggish. Car sales dropped. Customers were getting harder to find. And because of easy credit, many people were deeply in debt. Large sections of the population were poor and getting poorer. Just as Wall Street had reflected a steady growth in the economy throughout most of the 20s, it would seem that now the market should reflect the economic slowdown. Instead, it soared to record heights. Stock prices no longer had anything to do with company profits, the economy, or anything else. The speculative boom had acquired a momentum of its own. It was this, uh, the nature of mass illusion. Prices were going up. Um, people bought. That forced prices up further. That brought in more people. And eventually the process becomes uh, self-perpetuating. Every increase brings in more people uh, convinced of their God-given right to get rich. The 20s was a decade of all sorts of fast money schemes. Three years earlier, everyone was buying Florida real estate. As prices of land skyrocketed, more people jumped in, hoping to make a killing. Then, overnight, the boom turned to bust, and investors lost everything. Florida, folks, sunshine, sunshine, perpetual sunshine all the year around. Let's get the auction started before we get a tornado. Right this way, step forward, everybody. In May, the Marx right Brothers were before the cameras with their first film, The Coconuts. Its subject, the Florida land boom. Now, in 1929, the gullibility of those naive speculators was something to laugh about. 800 wonderful residences will be built right here. Why, they're as good as us. Better. You can have any kind of a home you want to. You can even get stucco. Oh, how you can get stucco. Now is the time to buy while the new boom is on. Remember that old saying? A new boom sweeps clean. And don't forget the guarantee. Groucho Marx would film these scenes and then rush to his broker to put more of his savings into the booming market. On margin, of course. Right at the corner of the store. Max Gordon, the Broadway producer, was also heavily in the market. And Gordon could never get over the fact that the market was going up and up and up all the time. And he said to my father, uh, how... Uh, how long has this been going on, Groucho? And my father said, I don't know, but my broker down in uh, Great Neck tells me that it's because there's a worldwide market for American goods and it's never going to go down. The market will just keep going up and up and up. May 1929. 
stock prices were going up and up. With so much money to be made, people were borrowing more money than ever before to buy stocks. Market leaders like William Durant, far from being worried, were ecstatic. Off on his annual visit to Europe, he announced that everything would be fine as long as we all continued to believe. Confidence, not halfway confidence, but 100% confidence, is the real basis for our prosperity. Astrologer Evangeline Adams was now putting out a newsletter. Her 100,000 subscribers learned how the Zodiac could influence stock prices. Her advice for the coming summer? Buy. Hitting the ceiling, hitting the ceiling, breaking through to the sky. They thought this was a ride that was never going to end. It just goes on and on and on, and every day they got more money, and they're counting up their paper profits, and they're selling and buying and buying and selling, and they're doing great. She's like out again in shoe shine and say, "How's the market?" He goes to the bar and goes, "How's the market?" Everybody was in the market. People who are looking for the uh, one lucky break. Uh, people who are just hoping that they strike it right. You know, you, they, you take a rifle, you aim it in the ocean, and you hope to hit a fish. Along with the market, temperatures soared that summer. It was a record heat and a record three months at the exchange. Some stocks doubled in value. In June, the New York Times index of stocks rose 52 points. In July, another 25. In the middle of the summer, the Graf Zeppelin was completing his first leisurely trip around the world. The Marx Brothers had finished shooting their film, The Coconuts. Commander Byrd was still at his base camp near the South Pole. He too had money in the market and radioed his broker for the latest quotes. It is 500 home And on the radio, they were playing the latest hit tune, I'm in the market for you. I want a thousand shares of your caresses too. We'll count the hugs and kisses when dividends are due. Cause I'm in the market for you. On August 17th, Michael Meehan's brokerage firm launched a new service. One of uh, my grandfather's innovations was putting brokerage houses on the ocean liners. Uh, the first one on the Berengaria, and that allowed you during the whatever it was, six or seven day passage to Europe, if you were such a, uh, a stock market addict that you couldn't stand the withdrawal for that period, you could walk into the office and place your order to buy or sell 100 shares of General Motors or General Electric or whatever, and they would radio that order back to New York. It was being very modern at the time. They were very wealthy people on the transatlantic liners, and it, it gave them something to do. At sea and on land, everyone seemed to be making money. It was a stampede of buying, and major speculators like John Jacob Raskob whipped up the frenzy. He told readers of the Ladies' Home Journal that now everyone could be rich. September 2nd, Labor Day. 
It was the hottest day of the year. The markets were closed and people were at the beach. A reporter checked in with astrologer Evangeline Adams to ask about the future of stock prices. Her answer? The Dow Jones could climb to heaven. The very next day, September 3rd, the stock market hit its all-time high. My father and I had an ongoing discussion about the stock market. And I used to say, Pop, everybody's getting rich but you. You, you know, you, you work so hard and, and, and you're never going to make a nickel. All you do is you keep delivering these newspapers and that's about it. The, the guy who's shining shoes is in a stock market. The grocery clerk is in a stock market. The school teacher's in a stock market. The teller at the bank is in a stock market. Everybody's in a stock market. You're the only one that's not in a stock market. And he used to sit on that and say, you'll see, you'll see, you'll see. On September 5th, economist Roger Babson gave a speech to a group of businessmen. Sooner or later, a crash is coming, and it may be terrific. He'd been saying the same thing for two years. But now, for some reason, investors were listening. The market took a severe dip. They called it the Babson break. The next day, prices stabilized. But several days later, they began to drift lower. Though investors had no way of knowing it, the collapse had already begun. In the weeks to follow, the market fluctuated wildly, up and down. On September 12th, prices dropped 10%. They dipped sharply again on the 20th. Stock markets around the world were falling too. Then on September 25th, the market suddenly rallied. I remember well that I thought, why is this doing this? And then I thought, well, I'm, I'm new here, and these people, like every day in the paper, Charlie Mitchell would have something to say, the J.P. Morgan people would have something to say about how good things were. And I thought, well, they know a lot more about this market than I do. I'm fairly new here, and I really can't see why it's going up. But then when they say it can't go down, or if it does go down today, it'll go back tomorrow. You, you think, well, they really are like God. They, they know it all, and uh, it must be the way it's going because they say so. As the market floundered, financial leaders were as optimistic as ever. More so. Just five days before the crash, Thomas Lamont, acting head of the highly conservative Morgan Bank, wrote a letter to President Hoover. The future appears brilliant. Our securities are the most desirable in the world. Charles Mitchell assured nervous investors that things have never been better. Practically every business leader in America and banker right around the time of 1929 saying how wonderful things were and the economy had only one way to go and that was up. Unfortunately, he didn't have a crystal ball to predict the future. There's an old saying on Wall Street that the two most important uh, emotions are fear and greed. And you go from fear to greed in about a fraction of a second. So you're very, very greedy. And you say to yourself, I want to make more. And then the market goes down 10 points and you get, and you get frightened. I want to get what I, keep what I have. So you sell everything. And that's how you have a panic. So you have a panic on the upside. People rushing in to get in before the train takes off. 
and a panic on the downside, trying to get off the train before uh, disaster hits. Monday, October 21st. Hoover, along with the political and financial leaders of the country, arrives in Dearborn, Michigan, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Edison's invention of the light bulb. The host is Henry Ford. The country is reminded that in 50 short years, men like Ford, Durant, and Edison had transformed America from a third-rate power into the industrial giant of the world. And while they celebrated, their world was beginning to fall apart. There came a Wednesday, October 23rd, when uh, the market was a little shaky, weak. Uh, whether this caused some spread of pessimism, uh, one doesn't know. It certainly led a lot of people to think they should get out. And so on Thursday, October the 24th, the first Black Thursday, uh, the market, beginning in the morning, took a terrific tumble. The market opened in an absolutely free fall, and uh, some people couldn't even get any bids for their shares, and it was wild panic. And uh, an ugly crowd gathered outside the stock exchange, and uh, it was described as making uh, weird and threatening noises. It was indeed uh, one of the worst days that had ever been seen down there. There was a glimmer of hope on Black Thursday. Directly across from the New York Stock Exchange was a low, stately building, the House of Morgan. 22 years earlier, J. Pierpont Morgan had stopped the panic of 1907. October 24th, high noon. All eyes were now on acting head Thomas W. Lamont. Tom Lamont called uh, a number of the other bankers, like Charles Mitchell of uh, the National City Bank, and... Uh, uh, people from the Bankers Trust and uh, the J. Albert Wigan of the Chase Bank and so forth. There were about a half a dozen of them there. And they were gathered together to really discuss uh, what they could do to uh, stem this uh, tremendous onslaught of uh, selling stocks on the stock exchange that was taking place. About 12.30, there was an announcement that uh, this group of bankers would make uh, uh, available a very substantial sum uh, to uh, ease the uh, credit stringency and support the market. And uh, right after that, Dick Whitney made his famous walk across the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Richard Whitney, vice president of the exchange, was chosen by the bankers to be their representative. At 1.30 in the afternoon, at the height of the panic, he strode across the floor and in a loud, clear voice ordered 10,000 shares of U.S. Steel at a price considerably higher than the last bid. He then went from post to post, shouting buy orders for key stocks. Stood up on one of the seats at the post. And he said, I give it 45 for 50,000 standard oil. And everybody started to pull a hole, the, the crash is over. His Morgan's putting his money in, and the crash is over. And sure enough, uh, there seemed to be evidence that the bankers had 
moved in to end the panic. And it, they did end it for that day. The market uh, stabilized and even went up. The New York Times uh, uh, said that thanks to the formation of this bankers' pool, they uh, most uh, observers felt that the panic and the great sell-off was over. And uh, most people did feel that way. Tom Lamont felt that way. But uh, Monday was not good. Apparently people had uh, uh, thought about things over the uh, weekend, over Sunday, and decided maybe they might, might be safer to get out. And then came uh, the real crash, which was on Tuesday, uh, when the market went down and down and down uh, uh, without seeming limit. October 29th. Morgan's bankers could no longer stem the tide. It was like trying to stop Niagara Falls. Everyone wanted to sell. AT&T down 50%. RCA wants $110 a share, couldn't find buyers at 26. Blue Ridge 100 plunged to $3 and still no buyers. On the floor, they had never seen anything like it. And it was just like a nightmare. <laughs> and I couldn't believe what was going on. In those days, every buy order was on a black head. And every sell order was on a, a, a red pad. And all I saw was members running around with a fistful of red orders, just like chickens with their head cut off. They didn't know which way to run. They were panicking, screaming. Everybody was bumping into everybody else. Oh, well, don't remind them. <laughs> Anyhow, this is what happened. And I tell you, and I was supposed to answer everybody yelling at me, I said, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I, nobody knew what the hell to do. William Durant, the bull of the bulls, now tried single-handedly to support the market. The further it plunged, the more of his millions he poured into it. He became truly convinced that he was omnipotent. He thought that nothing could really unseat him. It was unfortunate. The forces were too great. There was no one man that could have been so powerful to control the market. There were some people, however, whose investment strategies made money. On October 29th, Jesse Livermore's wife, hearing of the crash, ordered the servants to move all the furniture out of their mansion into a small cottage on the estate. So when Mr. Livermore got home that night, he walked into a totally vacant house. When she told him that she had effected the move because she was sure that they had lost all their money, he told her that he had made more money that day than he had ever made before. For most others, it was all over. In brokers' offices across the country, the small investors, the tailors, the grocers, the secretaries, stared at the moving ticker in numb silence. Hope of an easy retirement a new home, their children's education, everything was gone. My father was uh, ready to kill himself. In the morning of the crash, he got a call, and it was Max Gordon, and Max Gordon said, Groucho, and my father said, what? And Gordon said, Groucho, the jig is up. 
there were all sorts of rumors, and you'd see people going down the street looking up to see if they could catch somebody jumping out the window. Now, it turned out there weren't as many people jumped out the window as they reported, but some did, and others committed suicide other ways. 500 miles from Wall Street in the Atlantic, the luxury liner, the Berengaria, was heading home. From Michael Meehan's brokerage office, word spread through the ship. The bottom's fallen out of the market. Men came running out of their Turkish bags and towels. Card games ended abruptly. Everyone tried to jam into the tiny office yelling, Sell at market! They had left England wealthy men. They docked in New York without a penny. There's nothing unique about this. It is something which uh, uh, happens uh, every 20 or 30 years because that is about the length of the financial memory. Uh, uh, it's about the length of time that it requires for one new, for a new set of uh, suckers, if you will, a new set of people capable of wonderful self-delusion uh, to come in and uh, imagine that they have a new and wonderful fix on the future. In the 1930s, Charles Mitchell was hounded by Senate committees and the IRS. The crash had left him $12 million in debt. This house was taken over, of course, and uh, things changed. And um, I began to know what the real world was all about. It was about time. I was 19 years old. In 1936, William Durant filed for bankruptcy. His only assets, which he valued at $250, were the clothes on his back. In the late 30s, the founder of General Motors tried his hand at everything from running a bowling alley to selling a cure for dandruff. He died in 1947, still talking about making a comeback. Herbert Hoover spent much of the early 1930s fishing. He explained in a speech that fishing is a constant reminder of humility and of human frailty. For all men are equal before fishes. The game on Wall Street had changed a great deal for Livermore. And the SEC was becoming a powerful factor and the rules were changed. He couldn't operate freely, buy and sell, the way he had in the past. And he couldn't adapt to the new regulations. So in a sense, his playing with the market was over. And I think a great deal of his interest in life was over at that point. The game was gone. In 1940, the day before Thanksgiving, a photographer snapped this photograph of an old and very tired Jesse Livermore. Several hours later, Livermore would go into a men's washroom and put a bullet through his head. At the end 
of 1929 as they celebrated New Year's Eve. All that lay in the future. Nobody knew that the Great Depression was coming. Unemployment, bread lines, bank failures. This was unimaginable. Then good luck came a knocking at my door. But the bubble had burst. Eyes were gray, Gone was that innocent gray. optimism, Anymore. the confidence, the illusion of wealth without work. One era had ended. They toasted the coming of the 30s. Nothing but, but somewhere deep down, All they knew the party was over.
He graduated from the distinguished William and Mary College, a rare event before 1900, not to speak of before 1800. He distinguished himself with highest honors, visited the royal governor who, like Virginians of the day, was a British subject and was a wine connoisseur. He married once to Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson, had six children, and after her death in 1782, never married again. There has been much modern goings-on about his relationship with an African-American woman, Sally Hemings, but that was long after Mr. Jefferson was a widower, and they were clearly very close since they lived together from 1789 until his death in 1826, in addition to them having several children together. After his wife's death, he began his incredible career, which would do 10 people proud to have accomplished so much. A colonial legislator in the Virginia House of Burgesses, member of the Second Continental Congress, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, governor of Virginia, Minister to France, Secretary of State, retired from 1793 to assuming the Vice Presidency in 1797, founder of the Democratic Republican Party, President, founder of University of Virginia, and correspondent in the legendary Adams Jefferson letters. He died with great symbolism on the same day as the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1826, the same day that President John Adams died. Jefferson was also a great scientist, inventor, and thinker. He was a man of the Enlightenment who knew most of the intellectual leaders in Western Europe. He believed independent farmers, the entrepreneurs of their day, were the guardians of democracy. He favored states' rights and feared the encroachment and bossiness of the federal government. He strongly supported the separation of church and state, calling himself a deist. He was an archaeologist who unearthed American Indian remains by digging gently down and then observing the layers and what they meant, among other things. He was a great architect, as reflected by his influence on his home, Monticello, and the layout of the University of Virginia. He was a horticulturist, a paleontologist, and an inventor of various useful things, such as Benjamin Franklin did. Perhaps the most famous modern summing up of Jefferson's life was by President John F. Kennedy, saying at his famous 1962 party for 49 Nobel Prize winners, quote, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent and of human knowledge that has ever been gathered at the White House, with the possible exception of what, when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. I think, though, that Mr. Jefferson would have been prouder of an event even more recent, when the first Muslim elected to the House of Representatives, Keith Ellison, in 2007, requested the Library of Congress to let him use Mr. Jefferson's two-volume 1764 edition of the Quran to be sworn in by. Jefferson is truly a man for all seasons, centuries, and cultures. Education and Early Life Thomas Jefferson was born in 1743 into a wealthy Virginia plantation-owning family. His father owned several plantations, and his mother was part of the wealthy Randolph family. Jefferson started his studies at a young age for the time. By 10, he was learning Greek, Latin, and French, languages that would serve him well all of his life. As the third of eight children, he inherited 5,000 acres upon his father's death when Jefferson was still only 14. He remained at this place until he died in 1826, much indebted because he never worked diligently for his own financial purposes, but for others instead. At this point, he boarded at the then version of a prep school with schoolmaster James Parrish, where he broadened his education to include science, literature, and history, as well as the classics themselves. In 1760, he entered the College of William and Mary at the age of 16. He graduated only two years later with the highest honors. He studied philosophy, higher mathematics, metaphysics under Professor William Small, who introduced him to the British empiricists, 
Bacon, Locke, and Newton, who would influence him for the rest of his life. Interestingly, he called them the three greatest men the world had ever produced. As with his own epitaph, Jefferson always admired the great thinkers, writers, and experimenters more than the politicians, empire builders, or military people. It was his building upon his experiences at William & Mary that he created the first truly non-religious university in America, known now as UVA. That was one of his listed accomplishments, and his epitaph, along with authorship of a related statute, the Virginia State Statute of Religious Freedom, and the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson showed an avid interest in all fields, was a very hardworking student, perfected his French, Greek, and Latin while reading Tacitus and Homer at his leisure. At 23, he married a widow, Martha Skelton, in 1772, and had five children that lived, one was still born, during his 10-year marriage. Martha died in 1782, and Jefferson never remarried. Political career, 1774 to 1800. Shortly after Martha died, Jefferson took up a political career built upon his legal one. In 1774, he authored his first significant document, A Summary View of the Rights of British America. He intended this as a manual or guidebook for Virginia delegates to the then-planned National U.S. Congress. The pamphlet provided a powerful argument for Virginians and all Americans to seek unsettlement with Britain for everyone's mutual benefit. His next major undertaking was to attend the Second Continental Congress as a representative from Virginia in 1776. It was here in Philadelphia that he, as a member of the Committee of Five, wrote the Declaration of Independence. It went through several drafts and other back and forth as described more fully in our audio book, The Declaration of Independence. After the Declaration was adopted in July and promulgated throughout the colonies in August, Jefferson returned to the new Virginia House of Delegates as a member. He immediately began to reform and update Virginia's laws based on the state's new status as a democratic entity. He drafted over 100 laws, which, among other things, streamlined the judicial process, eliminated primogenitor, the rule that the firstborn male inherit all property, and established freedom of religion. This included the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, read later on this audiobook. His bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge led to numerous reforms at William & Mary, his alma mater, including broadening study so students could have an elective system of study, which was the first such undertaking by an American university and has become the foundation of university studies ever since. Jefferson was then elected governor, in which role he served from 1779 until 1781. As governor, he managed the transfer of the capital from Williamsburg to the more central location of Richmond, where it remains today. The British invaded Virginia twice during Jefferson's term. Jefferson then served as minister to France from 1785 to 1789, and therefore did not attend the constitutional convention held in 1789. He supported the Constitution and pushed for it to include the first ten amendments, known commonly as the Bill of Rights. George Washington appointed Jefferson as first Secretary of State from 1789 to 1793. During this period, Jefferson split with the Federalists, who favored a stronger central government, and started what led to be the Democratic-Republican Party, on whose platform he won the presidency in 1800. Alexander Hamilton, the father of American finance, favored a federal bank later to be accomplished in the early 1800s, and then renewed again as the Federal Reserve under FDR. Jefferson favored states' rights, except in certain circumstances, such as in defense, and when the federal government could do a superior job. When war broke out between the French and the English, he strongly supported the French. At the same time, he agreed with George Washington that the nation should not get involved in the fighting or any foreign wars. Washington was to repeat this briefly 
in his farewell address, as Eisenhower did in a similar manner at the end of his political career almost two centuries later in 1961. Jefferson's interest in French success related primarily to the negative impact of a British success. He felt that would encourage the monocrats or monarchy supporters in the United States. There were still many in the U.S. who wanted George Washington to be our first king, so this was no small matter. Jefferson retired to Monticello in 1793 due to his increasing opposition to Hamilton and many ideas of George Washington himself. A reconciliation of sorts occurred in 1794 when the Jay Treaty was adopted, largely created by Alexander Hamilton, which brought peace and trade with our former enemy, but also the homeland of many, Great Britain. Madison still wanted to bring commercial pressure upon Britain, and this was supported by Jefferson, though the Jay Treaty calmed matters for some time. Jefferson was a Republican candidate, later to become the Democratic-Republican Party in 1796, and finished second to the Federalist John Adams of Massachusetts. In those days, the candidate finishing second became vice president, so Jefferson had that role. Although a major job today is for the vice president to preside over the Senate, Jefferson avoided it. He was asked to write a manual of parliamentary procedure and did so. With the retirement of the unanimously elected George Washington, party politics started up quite strongly during the Adams administration. Adams started a Navy, built up a peacetime army, readied for possible war, enacted the controversial Alien and Sedition Act, and levied new taxes to pay off the federal debt as well as fund federal activities. Jefferson opposed the expansion of federal power. Jefferson and Madison anonymously wrote the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, which stated the federal government only had powers specifically delegated to it by the states. Otherwise, states ruled. These resolutions, coupled with the prominence of Jefferson and Madison, especially as the respective authors of the Declaration of the Constitution, lent great intellectual and moral support to the advocates for state rights up until the present time. This would have a particularly strong impact regarding the concepts of interposition and nullification, which served as justification for the withdrawal of the Confederacy from the Union in 1861. Presidential Campaign of 1800. All of this controversy, plus Jefferson's position as vice president, made him the natural candidate in 1800 to run against the symbol of federalism, President John Adams. As with many candidates running against incumbents in American politics, Jefferson stood for the presidency based on attacking new taxes undertaken under the incumbent administration, in this case, John Adams. He did not formally campaign for office, as was the tradition at the time. He and Aaron Burr of New York rallied their new party, the Democratic Republicans, with the issues of excess taxes and federal encroachment upon states' rights. These same arguments were made forcefully throughout American history, but perhaps never so successfully and with as far-reaching consequences as similarly happened in the 1980 election between then-President Carter and challenger Ronald Reagan. As Reagan's impact would be felt for decades, so would Jefferson's. Jefferson tied Burr in the Electoral College. This threw the election into the House of Representatives, largely controlled by the Federalists. Hamilton persuaded the House that Jefferson would be the lesser of two evils, so he was elected on the 36th ballot. Burr was elected vice president. The 12th Amendment to the Constitution was adopted to avoid this, so both offices, president and vice president, would be on the same ticket. The bad feeling from all this, including Burr's not stepping down when the vote was going against him and requiring a formal vote, coupled with his famous duel that killed Hamilton, led to Jefferson dropping Burr from Jefferson's second-term candidacy and instead appointing Burr's fellow New Yorker, George Clinton. Presidency, 1801 to 1809. 
Jefferson became president after the crisis in France had ended. This was helpful since he had always been a friend of France from his days as minister to France until the present. This in part paved the way for Napoleon to sell the lands in what is now the far Midwest and West of the United States and what has become known as the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 for $15 million, a large sum for the times. With no hostilities active with England, France, or Spain, Jefferson slashed the Army and Navy expenditures put into place by his predecessor, John Adams. He also reduced the whiskey tax, so unpopular in the Middle South and Midwest, as it is known today, the West in those days. At the same time, he reduced the national debt by one-third, laying the foundation for paying it off entirely before the Civil War. Jefferson took a strong role in putting down the Barbary pirates who were taking American ships in the Mediterranean. This is quite a stretch for a man who didn't want to get entangled in foreign wars. But as Jefferson said, being president calls for changes in position when required. Jefferson, on the other hand, in the second term, worked hard to keep America out of the Napoleonic Wars. His use of embargo upon American shipping was unpopular, but any solution would have likely been seen in the same or worse way. To have a sense of how small the federal government was in those days, there were only six cabinet offices. Secretary of State James Madison for both terms, Secretary of Treasury Albert Gallatin for seven of the eight years, Secretary of War Henry Dearborn for both terms, four attorney generals, two postmaster generals, and two secretaries of the Navy. Ohio was the only new state admitted into the Union during his tenure in 1803. He appointed three of the justices of the Supreme Court, William Johnson in 1804, Henry Livingston in 1807, and Thomas Todd in 1807. Louisiana Purchase, signed on May 12, 1803. The Louisiana Purchase was noteworthy for many reasons, not the least of which is Thomas Jefferson went against his original state's rights inclinations changed his position to benefit the new nation by almost doubling the size of the United States, eliminating a dangerous enemy, the French, from its western borders, and unlocking the Mississippi River by buying the port of New Orleans in the transaction. The purchase left the United States with approximately 80% of the territory it occupies today in the continental United States. Only Spain's claims from Texas to California and west of the Rockies until the Pacific Northwest area remained along with the unclaimed area in what is currently the state of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. There were also two minor disputed territories with Britain in the Alberta area and northern Maine with New Brunswick, soon to be adjudicated quite amicably with Britain and Canada. The final dispute was with Spain with regard to Florida and the Panhandle area on the Gulf of Mexico to New Orleans. This was resolved under President James Monroe in 1819 in what has come to be known as the Treaty with Spain. The Louisiana Purchase was an example of American entrepreneurial negotiation, as Jefferson started out trying to buy just New Orleans for $10 million to unlock Mississippi shipping, and wound up being offered the rest of the Louisiana Purchase for just $5 million more. He took it. Dealt with the various American factions concerned with this Western addition that it would limit their powers, much as interest groups are today. These factions range from the Federalists in the North to slaveholding states in the South to those state rights advocates that were concerned the federal government was getting much more power at the expense of the individual states. Lewis and Clark Expedition. A few weeks after the completion of the Louisiana Purchase on the document reaching Washington on July 14, 1803, Jefferson requested Congress to appropriate $2,500 to fund what would become known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Jefferson had long considered such a plan since the territories abutted American ones. While minister to France, he had heard 
about numerous plans to explore part or all of the territories and beyond to the Pacific Ocean itself. Jefferson took the opportunity in his presentation to Congress to bring forth all the positive aspects that such an expedition could render the United States and to inspire curiosity about the project so Americans would come to appreciate their substantial national investment in these lands. Jefferson said, quote, the Missouri River and the Indians inhabiting it are not as well known as desirable by their connection to the Mississippi River and consequently with us. An intelligent officer with 10 to 12 men might explore the whole area to the Pacific Ocean. This, of course, is what Lewis and Clark ultimately did. Jefferson had lined up Lewis first in early 1803 as events were unfolding in the negotiations surrounding the Louisiana Purchase. He wrote Lewis, quote, The object of your mission is to explore the, Missis the Missouri River, which goes almost due west from the Mississippi, and such principal streams of it by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, whether the Columbia, Oregon, or Colorado, or any other river which may offer the most direct and practical water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce, unquote. This letter shows the relative ignorance everyone had of the area. The enormous height of the Rocky Mountains, which would impede such a journey, were clearly not known at this time, along with so much else that Lewis and Clark would ultimately report. Lewis left Pittsburgh on August 31st, 1803. The expedition spent their first winter at Camp Du Bois in the then Illinois Territory. They left on May 14th, 1804, to begin their western journey. They spent that winter at their newly built Fort Mandan in what is now North Dakota. This is where Sacagawea, their future translator and savior, joined the party. That spring, the first contingent was sent home with a report of what the expedition had discovered, which included 108 botanical and 68 mineral specimens, one prairie dog that made it alive to Jefferson himself, and Clark's best mapped rendering of the territory. The expedition continued up the Missouri to its headwaters and beyond over the Continental Divide using horses. In canoes, they descended the mountains on the Clearwater River, the Snake, and the Columbia River, past what is now Portland, Oregon. They sp spotted Mount Hood, so they knew they were close to the Pacific, which they soon saw. They now built Fort Clotsop on the Columbia River. They began their long journey back on March 23, 1806. Clark and Lewis split up for a while to learn more and had a series of adventures worthy of any modern thriller with the Blackfeet and Crows. They reunited in August and made it back to St. Louis on September 23, 1806. Throughout this journey, they stayed north to stay away from the Spanish, who had only ceded the territory to France on the grounds they would not sell it to the United States or any other parties. They wanted, above all, to keep this as a buffer zone between the United States and northern Mexican wealth in their minds. Despite sending out various Spanish parties to stop Lewis and Clark, they never did reach or stop them. Founder of Virginia University. In 1819, Jefferson's efforts resulted in the formation of the University of Virginia, founded in the principles of a total separation of church and state, represented by a library, not a church, being the centerpiece of the main campus, known as the lawn, and students could specialize in many new areas of studies not offered at other universities in America at the time. The construction project was one of the largest of its era. The physical units were configured around the centered part of the campus and divided into buildings centering around individual subject interests. Each building, and therefore subject, was of the same size and tied together by open-air arcades that are the fronts of the buildings. This is called his academical village, with each building area a foot or two higher than the previous one, leading up to the library at the end of the lawn. The architectural style was modeled in Pericles Athens, the prior democracy to America, with some Roman influences. 
The library was modeled on the Roman Pantheon. The campus remains one of the most significant works of architecture in America. Jefferson the Man, Appearance, Temperament, and Family. Without photographs at the time, we must rely on portraits and written descriptions of the man himself. He was a large man for his time, over six feet, two inches tall. He was angular with the ruddy complexion of a farming person. He had a serious demeanor that struck most that met him even as a young boy. He was just noted for an engaging conversational style, much like the later Lyndon Johnson, while sharing Johnson's woodenness when speaking. He had intense convictions and emotional temperament, and yet the ability to reverse course when appropriate. His wife died in 1782, leaving him with five children from their 10-year marriage. He never remarried. In the White House, James Madison, then Secretary of State, to succeed him as the fourth president of the United States, allowed his wife, the famous Dolly Madison, to serve as hostess, which she continued for the next eight years of her own husband's presidency as well. She was fully capable of formal state dinners, but allowed Jefferson to have his more casual entertaining as well. A recent controversy has erupted about his relations with an African-American slave woman, Sally Hemings. In fact, Jefferson and Hemings only got together seven years after his wife's death and remained close for 37 years until Jefferson's death in 1826. She was the daughter of his first wife's father in the complex inner workings of whites and blacks in the South. Under racial pressures that still exist over 200 years later, they remained close all their lives and had children they were jointly proud of. Future generations on Jefferson's first wife's side dissociated themselves from Sally Hemings, but DNA has served to bring them together again in the 21st century. A great believer in privacy, Jefferson burned all his family letters, including those of his beloved wife. He was a private man who gave only two speeches during his eight-year presidency. He discontinued the practice started by Washington and Adams of giving the State of the Union address in person to Congress. Instead, he relied on his more reliable pen and sent the speech over to Congress in writing. This practice continued until President Woodrow Wilson, formerly president of Princeton and a noted public speaker, started up again the tradition of personally delivering the State of the Union address in 1914. Jefferson was quite the inventor, much like Franklin. He loved to do architecture and is credited with such buildings as his own Monticello, the lawn and buildings surrounding it at the University of Virginia, and the Virginia State Capitol Building. His preference for federal style and architecture has had a profound influence upon American architecture in general and government and college architecture in particular. He developed his own line, Fish Pond, was a great connoisseur of wine from his days in college and the then royal governor's house where he got to indulge in his hobby. He was a noted gourmet and generally liked to talk in small groups and have a good time. When the British burned down Washington, D.C. in 1814, he sold his library to the government to be the new beginning of the Library of Congress. In his honor today, they call the website Thomas. His collection extended to a two-volume addition to the Koran, which was used by the first Muslim congressman for a swearing-in ceremony in 2007. Political philosophy. You've heard Jefferson's political philosophy throughout this audiobook. He expressed some of his greatest thoughts and his concerns. Concern that religion would should be separated from the state as articulated in his Virginia statute of religious freedom, read later. That states should retain most rights, and certainly all those not specifically granted the federal government. That the Supreme Court may have held too much power. That restricting the carrying of arms would limit them to the criminal classes. That corporations might arise to become too large and powerful. That British aristocracy and titles had no place in America. And that the Bill of Rights remained sacred. In other words, he was a man of deliberation and caution, raising concerns as with a yellow flag in a NASCAR race. Slow down, be cautious, stay in place. His thoughts were like the doctor's oath, first do no harm, a wise caution, 
for other anxious politicians. John Locke and the empiricists were his guiding light. He also famously believed that each generation had to make its own constitution and that one generation should not pass its debts off to the next. The reality of the presidency and the rising power and strength of America caused him to adjust some of his principles for the greater good. He engaged in foreign wars by snuffing out the Barbary pilot off the shores of what is now Libya. He made the entrepreneurial Louisiana Purchase, despite not being authorized by the Constitution, and much griping therefore. He supported small entrepreneurial activities, though he feared large industrial ones, much as many Americans and presidents have done since then. He was against the National Bank, the dream of Alexander Hamilton, and one wonders if he wouldn't have changed his mind in that as well as the decades rolled out towards the middle of the 19th century. The Adams-Jefferson Letters. The Adams-Jefferson Letters included Abigail Adams, who always encouraged her husband to keep this remarkable correspondence going. Adams and Jefferson went against type. The congenial Adams came from the hard scrabble lands of New England where farming was always tough, and he was a farmer first and foremost. Jefferson was the restrained one from the usually more open Virginia personality type, a farmer as well in the rich Virginia farmlands. Jefferson was tall and angular, though always thought to be graceful and adroit physically. Adams was chubby, rotund, and barreled around. The correspondence, above all, shows the warmth of Adams and the restraint of his friend Jefferson. Adams wrote copiously and Jefferson rarely. That being said, Jefferson was undoubtedly warmer to Adams than anyone outside of his family. When Adams was elected the first vice president, serving under the legendary and only unanimously elected president, George Washington, Jefferson wrote, No man on earth pays more cordial homage to your worth, nor wishes more fervently your happiness. Though I detest the appearance, even the flattery, I cannot always suppress the effusions of my heart. These two would write back and forth until their death in 1826 on the same day, July 4th. It is said that upon learning he would die shortly, Adams said, at least Jefferson lives. True or not, it makes a perfect ending to their careers as founding brothers of America. Jefferson's death and epitaph. Jefferson died fittingly on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, the same day as John Adams. He had served his country well, but not himself financially. He died a poor man, leaving his Monticello to the United States to be used as a school for orphans of Navy officers. He wrote his epitaph, insisting not a word be changed. Quote, here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia, unquote. He wanted to be remembered as the author and enlightenment figure he was. No mention of his political offices. Listening to what a person says about himself and his summing up is often the most significant approach to understanding that individual. That would seem to be the case here with Mr. Jefferson. Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. Well aware that the opinions and belief of men depend not on their own will, but follow involuntarily the evidence proposed to their minds, that Almighty God hath created the mind free and manifested the supreme will that free it shall remain by making altogether insusceptible of restraint. That all attempts to influence by temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness and are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, who being Lord both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either, as was in his almighty power to do so, but to expand it by its influence on reason alone. That the impious presumption of legislatures and rulers, civil as well as ecclesiastical, who bring, being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such endeavoring to oppose upon them 
and upon others, hath established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time. That is, to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. That even the forcing him to support this or that teacher of his own religious persuasion is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving his contributions to the particular pastor whose morals he would make his pattern and whose powers he feels most persuasive to righteousness, and is withdrawing from the ministry those temporary rewards which proceeding from an approbation of their personal conduct are an additional incitement to earnest and unremitting labors for the instruction of mankind, that our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics or geometry, that therefore the prescribing any citizen is unworthy of the public confidence by laying upon him an incapacity of being called to offices of trust and emulment, unless he profess or renounce this or that religious opinion, is depriving him injuriously of those privileges and advantages to which, in common with his fellow citizens, he has a natural right. That is tending also to corrupt the principles of that very religion it is meant to encourage, by bribing with a monopoly of worldly honors and elements those who will externally profess and conform to it. That, though, indeed, there are criminals who do not withstand such temptation, yet neither are those innocent who...